Welcome to Moralia Python Radio with your hosts, Eric Burke and Owen McIntyre. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Moralia Python Radio. So, here at Moralia Python Radio, we like to make dreams come true, and it's Rob's birthday the other day, so he wanted to host Moralia Python Radio in the worst way. So, Owen has bowed out gracefully and allowed... Rob Stone to come and join us on tonight's episode. What's up, Rob? How you doing? Not oh, much, man. That's one way of putting it. I don't know that those are. That's quite how I would uh, characterize the situation. But uh, I think it was more that uh, I really did want to talk to Tim. I've been pitching you for two years to try and get him on the show, and you know this was the second Tinley in a row where I'm like, okay, I'll set it up, dude. I'll set it up, and uh, you know. I, I was concerned that he'd just think I was totally full of shit with no pull at some point. So uh, <laughs> I was glad to do it, and I was like, okay, I'm going to come on too. And then OMAC was like, wait, a ball, a guy known, you know, he has plenty of other stuff, as we'll find out tonight, but a guy known for ball pythons and Rob, fuck this, I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So what's weird is, you know, for people that have listened to Reptile Podcast since the beginning, I remember hearing Tim on Reptile Radio, and it's just, I don't know uh, what, what the word would be, but it's just a little weird, I guess, strange that now, you know, he's he's on this podcast. You know what I mean? I don't know. It's just kind of weird. Right? But, yeah. You know, because when I would well, listen yeah, to no, that, I would think, these guys are legit, right? you, know, you know, and just like, whoa. This guy knows what's going on and all this stuff. It's yeah. Certainly, I mean, I'm with you, you know. The two of us, you know, the the hardest core uh, reptile radio listeners there are or were, you know, and uh, so yeah, no, I, I've heard him talk a lot, and then uh, you know I would see him at Tinley and would chat him up and said, hey man, you know, he got a rosy bow from me, and I was like, okay, you know, and then I was telling him, no, I'll, don't worry, man, you know, not not really ball python oriented, but I think I can swing it, I can swing it, and then a year later I'm like, okay, for real this time, man, you know, and then. I know you've been so busy that it was like, hey, maybe I can, maybe now's the time, you know? We'll yeah. see if uh, I can book a show faster than OMAC can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Owen. <laughs> um, but, uh, um, yeah, so... He won't listen anyway. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I know. It's a true story. So, um, you know, one of the things I'm excited to talk to Tim about probably is uh more than any other ones that he has uh species that he works with are angolans um because you don't really get to talk to too many people that work with them they're like one of those species that kind of get lost they could they could follow suit uh they seem to have had a resurgence uh in the past couple years but before that they you no know, not very right. many people work with them yeah you know? Yeah, and no, I was they could talking follow to somebody ring about this python. today. Oh, really? Well, so that's, yeah, I was talking to somebody about this today, and that actually hits on the, the ring python thing, man, is I think these, certainly the rings, I'm, and I think maybe the Angolans are like this, right? I mean, when we first started, they were unattainable, just totally unattainable. You would see Al Zulich had them, and they were 15 grand a pair or whatever, and it was like, wow, that's just not going to happen. Um, right. They became more, com- and Casey obviously had them as well. But it became more commonly available, and the price came down. Maybe I feel like ten years ago they were fifteen hundred a pair, 
something like that, you know, where it's like, oh, maybe almost for me, you know? Um, uh-huh. And then, like, yeah, you could swing it, but it's going to be tough, that sort of thing, you know? And then um, right. now it seems like they're even cheaper, but it seems like for the most part, excepting one guy down in Texas that I'm thinking of, you, you just – it seems like it's all onesie twosie, you know, like they have a, a pair and then those sometimes produce and they sometimes have babies. There's not one dude. It doesn't seem like that has like eight pair, you know, where it's just like every year I'm going to have them. You know, this is the thing. Um, right. That's, that's my impression. Whereas the rings, same deal, man. Although as I always say, you know, like it seemed like there were more of them than there were before, right? Because the blind man's bluff. You had the, the blind guy smuggling them from New Guinea. So people were producing <laughs> them, but like half right. the ones were smuggled babies from New Guinea. So it's like, it's not true to say, oh, they were every, or, you know, everyone was producing them back in the day. Well, sort of. They were producing half the ones that were available. The others were being smuggled from New Guinea, you know, by the blind right. guy. So right. that. Um, but, uh you know, the the point is, I think five years ago, man, they really were rare. But then you had dudes like uh, Chris at Mystic, and obviously Kyogen's been consistent throughout this whole thing. But I think five years ago, people realized there weren't that many of them, and they, they've uh-huh. been buying them. And I think now those are actually probably safe. You know, like now those will be getting to adults, and if people treat them seriously, treat them right, I think those will actually be around. Yeah. Your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, I only have a pair of them, such 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 different pythons than what I'm used to. Um, uh, they're whippy, they're, and, they're, you know, yeah, they they remind me of a colubrid, whereas oh, yeah. we we'll call it a colubrid. I don't know what the correct <laughs> <laughs> term is, but uh, you know, that's just me and Owen. <laughs> you know, colubrid. Yeah, I love it. At but, least uh, one way or the other, you know. Presumably yeah. someone's getting it right. Yeah, I wish we had I, more banter like the uh, Herp Highlights folks where we would then make science jokes about the name or something, but I don't <laughs> think we're going to be able to pull that yeah, off. Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, 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 think, I think you're right. I think a bunch of people – I just hope that it doesn't fall into the category of – which actually this would segue into uh, something that I wanted to uh, – to tell people, um, just give a shout out to Scott Borden. He did, uh, he's doing a blog now. And, um, the one that I read, I, th- I guess he just released it the other day, but he was talking about patience and, um, you know, it's not something that you really think about, um, when it comes to reptiles, because, you know, in today's day and age, it's how fast can you get it to breed? Um, you know, I mean, you're breeding. What's the youngest ball pythons are bred? Six months. Uh, someone, no, dude. I think it was Nick was saying. He just said it was like 29 days. Oh my god! Someone that he knew, <laughs> like literally. So obviously it's the males, but he was. I think he said it was either 29 or 39. Like you know, BT would always talk about four months, but no, we're talking. He he said 29 or 39 days or something. Like it was absurd. Yeah, yeah. I, hey, man, I, I don't, I don't knock that, but I just, I, I don't know. It, it, the problem is, is that if you're dealing with a species like that, and this was sort of what Scott was talking about, it's like if you're dealing with a species like that, where you can, basically, you know, I think Nick's other comment was, is that you're looking at domestication at that point. Um, you can't go from an animal that you know. Oh Lord. Like, what's that? You know, you don't follow well, that too. Well, no, you just. Well, I, I, 
yes and no, right? Yes and no, as always, where it's like, whatever. The answer is yes, <laughs> I'm the long-term captive bred stuff. But like, sure, but I have F1 gray bands. I have F1 ball pythons, you know, like, because same, same, and I know Nick does too, you know. Right. So, um, you know, where it's just, yes, generally speaking, yes, I agree. But I have plenty of captive hatched and F1 snakes where it's like, no, this is the first captive generation. But generally speaking, yes. Right. I'll stop there. <laughs> As well, always with yeah. me and Nick. And actually, I mean, we had a good talk this week. You know, it was really funny. We talked about you a lot. Um, oh, really? <laughs> uh, uh, but, uh, you know, know we're on, totally on the same page. <laughs> yeah, right? Well, a little of both, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? Uh, but um, totally on the same page. We're just different people who express stuff differently. So I agree. But, yes. Yeah, that I think. Der- uh, derailed that enough. <laughs> go, go on with your point. <laughs> I think what he what he was getting at is that you know when you get into these some some of these species that are you know not as kept as uh, frequently in captivity it, it, you know when it when they don't fit into that same formula of two years old females and you know then people sort of they they lose their patience and then they pass it along. I was so happy to hear the last time we talked to Ari him actually say um you know part of part of the issue with species like bolens or scrubs or stuff like that is that you know once and we've talked about this a million times it's like once you s- moves to a new house or a new you know new home new keeper new situation yeah, totally you basically reset the clock it doesn't really matter how old the animal is especially right. if you're dealing with wild caught you've reset that clock for it to kind of settle in and, you know, I don't know, but patience, man. I'm with you, man. (laughs) Yeah. Patience in this game. Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard though. That's the hard thing about Facebook is you see everyone doing seemingly doing everything, you know, and you feel like you're being left behind, you know, and it's like, that's uh, why I deleted it. Facebook is hard. (laughs) Yeah. Me too, buddy bear. Yeah, I deleted it from my phone. I look at it probably at the end of the day when I'm sitting on the couch on my iPad, and that's about it. You know, it's just I don't know. I I I feel so much. I don't know, man. I I I just like I'm more focused on on my animals than I've ever been, and um, I guess the season that I'm having is is proving uh, that to be. Uh, a good formula, you know, for success. Yeah. So. You're knocking it out of the park, man. Yeah. You're going to be yeah, overwhelmed so. with babies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be giving everybody that comes to Carpet Fest the carpet. Here you go. One for you. Take one. one take one. 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 Yeah. I'm going to be the Oprah of the carpet world. Everybody gets a really? carpet python. <laughs> <laughs> it's under everybody's chairs and stuff. Yeah. So, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Anything else going on with you? Anything else uh, new in your reptile um, hobby? I don't know. I don't think so. You know, I'm mm-hmm. uh, putting together those ball pythons that I've been babysitting, and they're getting big follicles and stuff, and that's sort of sort of cool. It would it won't mean anything to Tim, you know, but it, it's just sort of sort of cool. I'm I'm like Eugene and Brian and stuff, where it's like 
anything hatches out, it's cool, you know? <laughs> like, if it right. approaches, that's cool, you know? But it's even right. cooler if it's if it's a little snake or whatever it is. Leopard gecko, you know, I read the leopard geckos a couple of years back for the first time in 15 years, and I was like, this is actually pretty cool, you know? I actually enjoyed it, and it was just sort of like, I only needed to do, a, you know, get a couple of clutches, and I was like, all right, maybe I'll get these females to someone who's more serious, and I'll just keep keep my male as a fun little pet, you know? But it was fun to do, you know, and it's, I think that's, that's why I'm, I'm jealous of you this year with all these babies is as long as you don't keep perspective, don't get overwhelmed by it. You know, it'll be, it'll be so awesome to see all the cool stuff you're going to make. Yeah. And the, the maternal incubation clutches, I mean, man, that, that one, right? that one mom is wrapped around those eggs tight and she's, she's being a perfect, uh, you know, mother Python and, uh, she hasn't left them That's yet, awesome. you know, and uh, it's just such a cool site. I mean, I think you've sent me pictures of a ball python maternal incubating, and it seems that, like, with carpet pythons, they just, like, they, like, they, like, wrap around eggs like I've never seen a python. It seems like the other ones kind of, I guess it has to do with body structure maybe or whatever, but they kind of just, like, beehive around those eggs like nothing I've ever seen. It's so cool. And I know everybody's like so nervous about it and, you know, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, that's what I did last year and that's what I'll do again this year, you know, um, if I, you know, if I get any eggs. And um, I was talking to Harlan actually, and he said that, I think he was talking about a professor out at Western State here in Colorado who had uh, done research on this. And I guess I had said, oh, I'm maternal you know, did these ball pythons, and he, he laughed, and he's like, ball pythons don't uh, shiver. They sit on uh-huh. them, and they'll get moisture, and they'll kind of retain heat, but they actually, they're not a shiver species, and I had no idea, and certainly they went a little bit longer, but they did, did you know, just fine, but I guess those are, as you say, carpets are the, the prototype for doing that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. From <laughs> they're just like I don't know. They're just I'm gonna be nervous if I do it with a different species. I will try eventually, but uh, you know because they just do it. I try to take a picture so, of well, it. You, yeah, yeah. So, but uh, yeah. Well, and then no, you wind no, up taking pictures for two months because they keep going, and you're just like, it's still so cool, you know. Yeah. <laughs> At least that's what I did. I don't know. Yep, yep, yep. And then that that and last like, day. Yeah, you know, no, yeah, and you see yeah. the uh, see she loosens up, and then you know you see that little head poking out. It's, it's a freaking cool sight, man. So, but uh, yeah. What about know. that huge right. postal that Scott put a picture of? That was pretty cool. Oh, over in the chat. Yeah. Yeah, I did see that earlier. Um, like when you yeah. look at the one in the the in the tree picture thing is monstrous like oh my gosh yeah i love those you know the ones that are uh in the wild the the head where it's like real no defined you know right uh, skull and crossbones type of deal and yeah that's that's always badass (laughs) he's lucky man (laughs) that's like shangri-la for us yeah man (laughs) so it's just like oh yeah there's a coastal carpet on my fence no big deal so, but um, I don't know. You ready to get Tim on here and uh, get this going? I think so, man. Yeah, 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, man. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the the only other thing, and I'll throw this up in the chat. Um, so we're in the, my daughter's a Girl Scout, and we're in the middle of the Girl Scout season. And here's the shameless plug. I'll throw the uh, link up on the chat. If any of you out there want to buy Girl Scout cookies and get them shipped to you and whatever, there's a whole little thing that I'll uh, link to on the chat. And uh, she's trying to sell 1,500 to go to all these camps, and she's like. 185 or 200 boxes away. So if any of you out there, OMAC, I'm looking at you. Jim from Morgantown, I'm looking at you. Eric, <laughs> you know, maybe the wife wants some, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> then, yeah. Uh, then uh, if you could come through, it would mean a lot to a little kid, and that'd be super. So sorry to put this ad on. I know we're a non-commercial podcast, but uh, I sort of got clearance from you first. Yeah, that's that's fine. <laughs> no worries, man. No worries. So. A week left, so so I'll as I say, I'll put up the link and get on it. That would be awesome. Okay. You make a little kid's day. Awesome. Very cool. All right, let's get Tim on. Let's get this going. Hey, Tim, how you doing? Welcome to Morelia Python Radio. Hey guys, I'm doing good. Can y'all hear me good? Yeah. Yeah, you're coming through, man. Okay, I, I I know I I know I talked to Rob last week, so I, I told him my uh, first hour of the show I'd probably be in my car, so I didn't know. I uh, wanted to make sure y'all can hear me good uh, in the uh, the speaker phone in the car. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, you're cool. <laughs> you're fine, man. Yeah, uh, I, uh, I I have been listening probably for about the last fifteen minutes and. I I I I was I felt muted. I kept wanting to interject. There's probably I probably just talked for an hour on half the stuff y'all were talking about. I got all kinds of theories and thoughts and that was uh that was some interesting conversation y'all had. <laughs> and, Go for it, and, man. And, and I'm not a carpet I'm not a I'm not a carpet guy at all, so I couldn't even interject in the carpet python piece of it, but still some of the some of the other stuff was, was interesting. I've I've already half let half of that go, so uh I don't even remember half of what y'all was talking about, but I know I, I kept starting to talk. And I was like, oh, not on yet. Hang tight. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> so, me and Rob both know how you got into reptiles and all from your reptile radio podcast uh, interviews and stuff. But uh, for the listeners, tell us how you got started in reptiles and then just tell us, you know, like what kind of collection you're working with. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, uh, as far as. How I got into it, I got into it when I was a kid. I had tons of, you know, everything I could get when I was little. <clears throat> to, to age or date myself a little, I'm I'm almost 43 years old. So uh, back in the mid-80s, um, I wasn't deep into it. I had some friends that were, uh, and there was obviously some pet stores around, and there wasn't much internet or anything. So I, I didn't have a ton, but, I mean, I, I had a scorpion. I had a tarantula at one point. Um, I had a garter snake. Uh, I had other miscellaneous snakes here or there. <clears throat> and then uh, I probably, uh, I know my mom uh, had a guy at work. One of his kids had an iguana. I wanted to get rid of it. So I ended up with an iguana uh, named Godzilla. <clears throat> and he lived free roamed in my room for my junior and senior year of high school. Uh, and, and lo and behold, you know, ended up dying, I think probably from metabolic bone disease. He was five foot long, lived in my windowsill every day when I got home and 
but but probably just wasn't getting enough vitamin D three. Probably wasn't getting enough UV light because I had windows, so it was, you know, uh, filtering most of the UV. But uh, anyway, the, <clears throat> the last snake I had was a Mexican black king snake, and uh, actually I was getting ready to get rid of that snake because I was going to boot camp, and uh, it got out of the cage. So for three months while I was in boot camp, that snake roamed the house, and my mom could never find it. My stepdad could never find it. Three months, went to boot camp, came home for uh, 10 days of leave, and actually found him the second day I got home, sitting in the front of the door, uh, and gave him to a buddy. So, that, you know, after that, that was, uh, that was 95. So I was probably out of, the, out of reptiles, didn't have anything for eight years or so years um i moved to the house i live in now i've got a big uh pond in my front yard bass pond catfish fish whatever um a daughter was i want to say this is oh two oh three oh three i think so my daughter's probably five caught a little red ear slider baby he kept it probably for about three or four months couldn't get it to eat really well uh, I don't think she was changing water good. It ended up dying. <clears throat> so uh, she decided she wanted a snake for a pet. So uh, I used to, driving home from work every day, would pass a, a pet store all the time. Uh, it was actually exotics by nature. And uh, <clears throat> so, we, I, you know, my wife had heard about it. And uh, so we brought my daughter down on the weekend, and she looked at snakes and decided she didn't want a snake. She wanted a bearded dragon. So we ended up with a bearded dragon. And, uh, of course, you know, any any of the listeners know bearded dragons eat crickets. So I had to get food every week. So I'd stop at least once a week on the way home from work and get crickets for a bearded dragon. And uh, <clears throat> Sean at that time was was – uh, had been doing tons of, and that was part of y'all's discussion, I say colubrid, colubrid, uh, I don't know what's right or wrong, but uh, Sean had been <laughs> a, a big corn snake, king snake guy for a long time and had, had just been diving into ball pythons. Uh, I know they had a, a fairly decent boa collection at the time as well. Uh, but anyway, going to the pet store every week on my way home from work, I stopped at crickets, and, and Sean's pet shop was, was always just a hanging place for a bunch of local guys that would hang out and yak about whatever they were interested in. We had, you know, guys that were big monitor lizard guys and air boa guys, python guys. So it, it was a fun time hanging out. And uh, it just kind of in there looking at Sean bringing in all the new stuff and, and kind of got hooked on ball pythons. And uh, so what wasn't too much longer, may, maybe a year at the most, after uh, getting the, the bearded dragon, uh, we started buying a couple of ball pythons. And, and I guess, as everyone else would say, the rest is history. So started in 03 <laughs> and, and just continued to evolve and continued to grow and never stopped growing and got to the point it is now. Um, so as, as, as far as where we are now, um, I've... I, uh, I just posted uh, a Facebook memory the other day that was six years old. And so, I, 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 obviously, somewhere around 2012, I started building the building that I'm in now. Um, 
as, as a bunch of my friends said, hey, you know, you, you grow in, you build something, you grow into it. Quit building little closet additions and just build a building. Because, you know, I just kept building a little tiny room onto whatever I had and, and kept growing. And so we finally built a, built a 2,000 square foot building, moved everything in. And at that time, the original plan was, hey, you know, we're going to, going to quit quit my job and, and do this full time and uh you know that numerous things happened that kept me from actually quitting and doing it full time uh it's a long story but uh so it, it's still a I don't want to call it a hobby it's pretty big but it's it's uh not as big as many but bigger than a hobby I would consider I do have an employee and and I hired an employee to, to help with cleaning and, and alleviate some time off me because I do still have a full-time job. But uh, So we moved into our building in 2013, and uh, I've just continued to grow the collection. Uh, the building's really still not at what was originally the full-capacity plan. Um, but I, I, at, right, at this stage of the game, I don't really want to get there. But uh, but I also didn't really want to shrink, and I, and I knew that at least having a building, I always have the ability to revisit, you know, quit my job, and and if I get to the point of revisiting that again, at this point, my daughter's graduated high school, my son's a freshman, so you know maybe in three years when he goes off to college, I, I'll look at it, reevaluate finances and where I am, and you know do I do I need to keep taking care of them, and, and we'll see where it goes, but. The option's always there, so it, it was it was nice to have that option. Nice to have a really good employee that takes care of stuff that helps me not worry about stuff near as much. Uh, so that's good. Um, <clears throat> but it, it, as far as diversity, you know, I I started probably I, I've always had a couple of species, but I would say in the last four to five years, I really started diversifying, and not in large numbers, but just diversifying and buying stuff that I always liked. Uh, so, you know, I'm not sure exactly where y'all want to go if y'all have questions on that or where we're going to go there, but, sure. but I, sure. I have I have gone in a bunch of other different directions. Right on. Well, I have just a quick interjection. It's always a question when I hear any of these podcasts. What's your regular job, man? I, uh, I'm i in the oil field. I uh, work for Halliburton. People probably heard of the, that big bad company, uh, but I, I actually... <laughs> I hit. Uh, I get my 20-year anniversary next month, so I've been working for them for 20 years. Um, I do. Right uh, I'm, I'm not a degreed engineer, but I hold a engineering position with those guys. I'm kind of like a project manager. Uh, so, actually, I was getting nervous. Uh, I, I planned my whole day around being able to call you guys at eight o'clock, and and uh, I, uh, I know talking to Rob, I told him Tuesdays I, I I leave work and and. I run with a track route, so I had track practice today. So I was running and left those guys just in time to call y'all. Got in the car and looked, and one of my rigs offshore called me. So I'm on the phone with the rig, and I was like, hey, y'all got one minute. And they got big problems out there. So I got a drill ship out in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico to call me with a bunch of issues. And so I was talking to them and called you guys about four minutes late. But uh so I'm in the oil field and I watch over rigs that are drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. Some people, I'm sure, listen know a little about the oil field. Some may not, but I I, uh, I run drilling mud, which is what they put in the hole to uh, to drill a well. And 
that's a whole other discussion outside of snakes, but I'm in oil fields. That's what I do for a full time. <laughs> right on. No, that's that's super cool, man. It's as I say, it's always something that I'm curious about, you know, especially somebody like you who's got so much going on. Oh yeah. So, you want to go I would for it, Eric? No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead, Rob. No, no, no. That's that's it. I just want to talk about the building more and that whole process and all that stuff. Yeah, like sure, I mean, I watched your video that you did on, uh, you know, just kind of showing off your. Uh, building on uh, your Facebook page, but like, I don't know, man. Like, how do you? Some of the thought that went into that is pretty, uh, pretty impressive. Uh, how long did it take you to think up that? Like, I don't know. Tell us about the process. So that is a long process. People that have known me a long time, people that have known me from, you know, uh, ballpythons.net and even probably some of the some of the old reptile radio days a lot of people call and ask me questions because they know i keep all kind of crazy records on stuff and i'm uh for lack of a better term pretty anal retentive with stuff so actually i still have um and i'm not an architect i'm not an engineer but i i've got graph paper where i drew my building numerous times located doors rerouted where rooms were going to be, how big they were going to be, how many racks could I fit on this wall, where's electrical outlets going to be. But, I, you know, I mean, I, I ran through a lot of thought. I, with all that said, you know, kind of my beginnings to, to kind of go back where we started a little bit ago. You know, once I started buying ball pythons, I, um, I've got on my website, I've got DIY plans for how to build racks. And those actually were the what old wooden racks that Sean used to have in his facility. And his cousin Mark's the one I think that came up with that design way back when. Um, and and so I built a bunch of those racks, uh, and I had I say one, I want to say one or two of them in my house. Uh, and, and actually, the funny thing is, I bought my first snake, and about three weeks after I bought my first snake. I was also a Marine Corps reservist. So the Marine Corps called me and said, Hey, um, good size. I bought two more. And, uh, so she Hold had on, Tim, we lost you for a bit, I think. Oh, can yeah. you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we lost you. You said you were a Marine Corps reservist, and then we lost you for a few ten yeah, seconds or yeah. so. so. Yeah. So I was a Marine Corps reservist, and uh, and Marine Corps called me and said, "Hey, you're not going to be a reservist anymore. We're going to activate you, and you're going to go to Afghanistan for two years." So <clears throat> when that happened, I talked my wife into let me buy two more ball pythons so she could raise up three females while I was gone, and uh, she was fine with that. So. Uh, she raised up some, some females, and then, lo and behold, I, I got to come home after about seven months for a short period of time. I made a pile of money there, so I spent another $20,000, bought a whole bunch more ball pythons. She raised those up when I went back to Afghanistan. So when I got home, it was nice. I had, you know, about 20 animals in the collections and stuff that was almost ready to feed. But she was ready for them to get out of the house. 
so I I, uh, I had a I live in the country, so I got a, a well pump pump house. I rebuilt my pump house and added a addition onto it and, and put the ball pythons in there. And <clears throat> shortly after that, you know, it's, hey, I need to breed some rodents, so I built some rodent racks, put those in the same building, and then the snake collection grew, the rodent collection grew, and I ran out of space. So I built another room on the side of that one, and this kind of goes to that old closet here. <laughs> so I moved all the ball pythons into one room and left the rodents in the other room. And then uh, maybe a year later, I outgrew that. So I had a barn, and my wife had horses, but she had gotten rid of her horses. So I took over two of the stalls, converted them into a rodent room, moved all the rodents in there, took over the old rodent room, put baby ball pythons in there and adults in the other room. And then I guess about a year and a half after that, I ran out of space again. So I took over another quarter of the barn, turned that into another room, put all the ball pythons in there, adults, took over the whole original two rooms, turned those into babies, and then built a walk-in incubator in there. So, you know, the, the, the short piece of that long story was I had probably built about four or five separate small facilities at that point. So I had a lot of practice with what do I want in an incubator? Why is this too small? Why is this too big? Why does this not work from a humidity perspective? How does this work for a heating perspective? How do I heat a room? I was using, you know, window units and oil field heaters. And a lot of people now probably don't know what a Helix 1500 watt system is, but that's an old Helix <laughs> thermostat that used to run an oil fill heater, and I still have two of them. It still runs my, therm- my my incubator today. I love that, but you can't hardly find them anymore. Um, so I, just in building all of those buildings and all of those rooms, I had learned a lot of bits and pieces. Then couple that with the fact that in the middle of me doing all of that, Sean had bought a, a house. Uh, and closed his shop, and I went over there and helped him build out a building over there. And so we learned, you know, Sean had learned things from what he did at his shop. He learned things from what we built at his building, what I had, you know, built at my building. So you know, Sean had been doing it longer than I had. So you coupled what Sean had done with what I had done, and, you know, we have somewhere around 20 years' experience in, hey, what works and what doesn't. And so I, I right. just took all of that knowledge and, and rolled it into, you know, a, a really good plan that I planned probably for close to a year on exactly how I wanted that building to look, what I wanted it to do, how I wanted it to operate. And, um, you know, it came out really well. I can tell you the funny thing is there's still probably about three mistakes I made in there that if I could start all over again, I would change again. But I, I think you chalk that up to every time you build something, you'll find a new way to do it better. Um, right. I make it work for something. But one of the biggest mistakes, well, there's two. One of the funny ones is, um, and I have to probably show you in the video, but uh, the, the garage, and there's a storage area with a big, large 16-foot or 12-foot garage door. And that was where I was initially planning to take deliveries and planning to take all of my racks into into that garage. So from that garage, you move into what's my baby room now. And then that baby room has a door that opens into the main 
the biggest room in the facility where all the adult ball pythons are. And, of course, now there's a whole bunch of other stuff in there. But originally it was adult ball python room. And that was supposed to be a 36-inch door because a CB70 rack is 33 inches deep. And somehow I ended up framing that wall for a 32-inch door. And oh, all the 32-inch door in there. And I had all of the walls rock and everything was framed, but I hadn't floated sheetrock and I hadn't painted it yet. And I realized what I did. And I was so deep in and so frustrated that weekend for whatever reason, I said, I'm not opening that up. And I regret it to this day. Because now I have to bring racks in through a whole other ex- exterior door. And it's only a right. 36-inch door where you can take racks in. So that was one of those. It was in the plan, but then mistook it when I was executing the plan and so now it's still something I hate. So you can't just roll an entire C B seventy rack through that door. You have to take it apart, you know, one or two levels at a time and walk it in there. So that's a pain in the rear end. Yeah. Uh, and then the other one is I actually took my incubator door from my old incubator to move it into my new one, but for whatever reason I thought it was a right hand open door and it was a left hand open, but I wasn't thinking straight when I planned it. So now when you walk into my incubator, the door opens the wrong way. So the light switch is behind the door. And then if you want to get in there, there's a wall to your right side, it's a pain in the rear end. But most of the time I just go in my incubator by myself. So it doesn't matter anyway, but if you're trying to carry something in there or bring more than one person there, it's a pain. So there's a few things that we, we botched there. And then of course, you know, I, I ended up putting in many split air conditioners, which I love, and I think they're great, and I think they work wonderful for a building. Um, but they were still not new at the time, but there still wasn't a ton of people using a bunch of mini splits. And I put the wrong tubing and ducting in for the water drains. And so after about three or four years, three years, I started having some problems with drains backing up and, and the AC units leaking. And so I ended up having to cut back into the walls and replace uh, the drains. So that was a pain. So I had some lessons learned there. So I can still build another building now and improve on what I have. Uh, but right. I have had a lot of people come to the building and, and really like the way it's laid out, the way it works, and how efficient everything is and the space. And But I, I, to me, I really I tell anybody, hey, don't jump into it. You know, maybe you don't need to take a year to plan it out, but take your time and plan, you know, everything about where everything is, why it's there, and think about, you know, where are you putting hoses? You know, I've got two hoses in the building, and between my two hose reels, I can reach every corner of the building with a hose to spray cages and spray tubs and fill water bowls and where do you have sinks and what are you going to do with those sinks and how big are they and where's your light switches and do you need three-way, two-way switches or, or three-ways, I'm sorry. And sorry. Yeah, I mean, I put a lot of planning into every little piece and, uh, and, and I think I've benefited from it now. I really enjoy everything that's in there and how it works. So it, it's, if you're really going to get into a facility, put some thought into it before you go spending the money to do it because you'll, you'll definitely appreciate it for a long time it should did be you, a, a long-term recession did you put um i mean when you were building it were you strictly uh ball pythons at that point or did you have a vision of you know having these different species 
And no, you know, I had, I, I had, I did have other stuff. So oh, okay. Uh, you know, one, one, and actually, the funny thing is, the original plan had rodents in the building. Right. And Sean Dorn talked me out of it because we had put rodents in Sean's building just prior to that. He said, "Dude, you already have rodents in your barn. Leave them there." And, and you know, and so the the argument there was. If rodents are in the building, when you need a rodent, you just walk from your room right to your snake, you feed it, and it's great. The argument from Sean and other people was, dude, you're never going to get that rodent smell out of your building. You're always going to smell them. You're always going to be fighting that issue. Rodents are highly destructive from ammonia to, uh, you know, to wood and drop ceilings and insulation and anything you do. And then rodents escape and you got water leaks and they chew on walls trying to get out. And so I took that advice good and I actually converted what was supposed to be the rodent room. So last minute change, uh, I converted the rodent room into where the ball python baby room is now and then took what was going to be the baby room made it a hair smaller and turned that into a colubrid room, which worked well because then during brumation season, I just closed that whole room up and turned it into a brumation chamber. So it, okay. it worked out well, but no, but, but the colubrid room was always part of the plan. Uh, but it was really at the time it was a baby room and rodents were where the baby ball pythons were. And we made a shift, but I did have some corn snakes at that time. Uh, I think when I was building the building, I think all I had was corn snakes and ball pythons. I did have some corn snakes, and, and there were options to brewmate, you know, in in other places other than that room. Um, so, you know, the, the, the exterior, it's a pole barn. Uh, so the exterior building was built by a, a contractor, a company. Uh, they built the building, built the pole barn, and... Uh, poured the concrete, and after that, um, I built the entire building myself uh, inside. All of the framing, all the electrical work, all the plumbing, all the tile, all the flooring, all the everything. I did everything else in the building except that. So once they built the building, internal changes to walls, where they're going, doors. I mean, that was easy for me to change because I was doing all the work. So some of it got changed in the middle of me building a wall. Um, but, but yeah, there, there was, there was some planning for, for other species and I knew I wanted to get some other species. Um, you know, when I built the building, I, I knew I was going to expand in that direction, not necessarily what, but I knew I was. Right. Gotcha. We had a question that popped in from our chat that, uh, sure. Um, they want to know, you know, did you do you have any mold problems from the humidity uh, in the building, or did you? So that's that's an interesting question. It's not very much, but I, I still fight it occasionally, and unfortunately, I haven't done as much as I should. But um, I don't have any mold issues in my office or in my baby room or colubrid room. And that's because those rooms are, they're kind of like an L on the outside of the building. And those rooms actually have sheetrock ceilings. I mean, they're regular rooms. And those were actually built with 
uh, live load bearing ceilings. So I've got storage on top of both of those uh, rooms. So if you go into my garage area, and that's where I store all my uh, shavings and I got tools, my hot water heaters in there and all kind of stuff is in that storage area. There's a, right. a built a, a ladder set that accesses both of the top of those rooms for additional storage. So the main room, which the main room, it's a little tough for me to remember now, but I want to say the main room is like 26 by 34 feet. That room has got uh, nine foot walls with a drop ceiling. So the edges of the drop ceiling um, all in a channel that runs along the walls and the paint along the walls, the, the actual drop ceiling trim around the walls and on the wall, there is some mold right along the edges of those, and it's particularly moldy on top of the uh, mini-split air conditioner units that are in there because the, the AC units are mounted about, uh, I want to say, 10 inches from the, from the drop ceiling. Uh, so it's really wow. bad around those. So I do climb up on a ladder and I get a, I call it a green monster because that's what they call the Marine Corps. But that green scrubby pad on the back of a sponge, I just get the regular scrubby pads. Put a little uh -huh. bit of water on it, get up there, wipe that stuff, and it comes off. And I probably wipe it about once a year. And, and it's probably because I happen to be walking around the room and look up and go, man, that black shit looks kind of ugly now. Uh, so, yeah, there's a little bit of mold right there but it's not extreme and it's not real bad um so i you know it, we've been kind of fortunate with that so the i got one more question before we and this is kind of a more nostalgia than anything like you know listening back to when you were on reptile radio you know that's almost what 10 years ago that those guys were were going strong and did you Man, think that's probably about right did, did you ever think that you would be where you are today? And I'm just curious about, like, I, I mean, listening to those guys back then, you know, a bumblebee was like, you know, the craziest thing ever. It's like, what's that perspective like now? Oh, dude, it, it, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's funny you say that. Because I, I still have, he's got a problem. And, and so I've actually, I've got, uh, that's another long story that we may dive into somewhere down the road, but I got a buddy of mine that's, I got, well, actually two of them now that are veterinarians uh, that work for the zoo and uh, they come hang out all the time. And so I've asked them, but I, I, I had a few, I had to euthanize one not long ago, but I've got my original bumblebee male. Um, when you look his, his cloaca and one of his peens are, are, well, I don't know if it's infected now. I think it's just scar tissue now. But I mean, it looks like a golf ball sitting in that snake, and uh, I can't I can't bring myself to euthanize him because it doesn't appear to cause him any pain. He defecates, he does everything fine. Um, I had another ball python that, you know, I, I've actually had about four ball pythons that do that that have done that, um, <clears throat> and don't know what it is. But once I get to the point where there's some bloody discharge and there's some other issues and you, know, you can't do anything with it, then, hey, it's, it's time to get them euthanized, and I have. But, but my original bumblebee, I still have, and he's got that problem, so I can't sell him. Uh, so I just keep right. him to take care of him. But he hatched. He's a 2,000 and, if I'm not mistaken, six or seven animal. 
Okay. And, and, and I look at I look at that thing and it just it just so I actually had the ability to buy a bumblebee before I made my first one and I refused to do it. I said, right. dude, I, I just I got, I got to make my first one. That's what I bought this for. So I made my first bumblebee and I still have him. And and it's amazing to look at that animal and think what it is. And and when I've really when that's really hit home. Is you know I don't know how everybody else works their business model as far as taxes and CPAs go, uh, but you know when I first brought all my stuff to my CPA and my tax guy, he looked at me and he said, hey, the, the best way I can set up your business is is they've got models, CPAs and tax accountants have models for businesses, and or of course one of the biggest livestock businesses in the world is cattle. So he said, this model fits closest to that, so that's how we'll run it. So, so I've got an inventory of animals, and so if I sell an animal that I purchased, then, you know, most of the time I sell it at a loss. So the funny one is, you know, when I went in there, because I guess probably in 2009, I sold my original pinstripe male that I paid $20,000 for, and I sold them for 400 bucks. <laughs> So I got to make wow. a $19,600 loss on that animal. Now, that's just that animal. I, I had plenty of made that money back, you know, long ago, but I got to take the loss because right. that animal was in, in the inventory. So, right. you know, when you do that, that's when you really get to think about it. But, uh, you know, I, I've got a lemon blast that right now I look at, and I produced that lemon blast like the second or third year that we ever produced, so I know there weren't that many. Um, I just... And I've sold quite a few animals. I just sold a pastel mystic potion probably about two or three months ago. And someone bought it. And I was like, hey, just if it's worth anything, that's the first pastel mystic potion that was ever produced. You know, it's, it's the first one in the world. Now right. they're everywhere. But that animal was cool. Huh. So I, I still, from the nostalgia perspective, I still love walking through the, through the room and looking at animals that I just don't want to get rid of that I know where that's a first in the world, or I paid, you know, whatever. For, I still have my original albino that I bought from Sean. The albino male, 2004, so he's 14 years old. I paid $2,000 for that. I still have my wow. first pastel female that I paid two grand for. So when I pointed that and tell people, and they're like, oh, dude, I could buy a pastel female for like 50 bucks now. I'm like, hey, you can now. Couldn't <laughs> <Good>, then. <laughs> It's, it's still great to look at that. I mean, I, I still enjoy that piece of it. And, and you know, I, I, the funny thing now is I think that I actually I feel kind of sorry for some of the people that jump in and, and don't care to to look at or even think about the history of, of not even the ball python market, but the entire market of where we are and, you know, who who all of those guys are that that we can look up to is the ones that brought us to where we are and you know corn snakes yeah. and and how that transitioned and I, you know I, I love that piece of it and i still like looking at that and i still like understanding where some of that came from and i have people that ask me because again back to my whole anal retentive thing i've got hypomelanistic lines that i can tell you exactly where they trace back to where i got them and <clears throat> i have people ask me like what is what does that mean i don't can't find that anywhere. I go, well, because it doesn't really matter to most people, but I still know. So if you want to know, I'll tell you. So I, right. I can still trace a lot of my animals back to where I got them from in 2004 and five and six. And I, I used to keep 
record cards back then, and I still have most of those cards from 03, 04, 05 that I can go look at if you really want to know. So that's still pretty interesting. Yeah, I I just find it really cool because, you know, listening to you guys back then and, you know, and and seeing where it is now, it's just that I – I geek out about the history of that kind of stuff. It doesn't matter what the species is or, you know, it's just cool. But oh, it's part uh, of what no makes doubt. it cool. Yeah. And the, the heck, the bananas thing, I, I was looking at your site and I saw the pastel banana sugars or pastel coral sugars, you know, and it was like, those are $300. And I remember, you know, Brock coming on saying, you know, I sell them every day for 40 grand or whatever. It just blows your mind, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's funny you say that because you just confused banana corgle. I had someone this past weekend. We had a local show, and they're like, "Hey, you, do you have any bananas?" I'm like, "All right, there." They go, "No, that says corgle." And I go, "Okay, all right, let's run through how this works." You know, so we just ran through that, and I told them, "I said, <laughs> the, the funny, the funny thing is, everything on my table is corgle because my first male was a corgle." I said, "But the funny thing right. is, my first female right. was actually a banana, so I have a banana." female and i do produce you know a couple of banana animals from her but only a handful and i will call them a banana for the simple fact that i can trace that lineage back to will slow you know so uh, you know i have that now i just i just produced and kept finally for the first time this year my first female making male which came from that banana female so now i have two bananas i got a banana female making male banana now uh, and I'll I'll do some more, but for for most people, they don't care what you call it. But every now and again, someone will pick up on it and go, "Hey, why is that one a banana and that one a coral glow?" And I tell them, "Well, just because if that really interests you that much, then I can tell you that this animal I can trace back to Kevin McCurley, and this one I can trace back to Will Slow, and so I know that's a banana and I know that's a coral glow. Um, does it really matter?" No, I mean when you breed it, you'll never know the difference. But, but I know, and so I write it on there because sure. I know and I can. Right on, man. Um, so what all are you keeping now? What what's run us through the stuff? Uh, so I, uh, it's probably not all fresh on <laughs> my mind. Much. But what what I'm gonna <laughs> do is. And y'all aren't going to see it or hear it, but I'm going to walk through my building in my head because that's the easiest way for me to make sure I don't miss anything. So, I, obviously, we've talked about ball pythons, so I have ball pythons. Um, I've also got, and I know that you know you guys they sent me the link to what the what the podcast will look like. So, Angolans is one I have. I've had Angolans for quite a while. I don't have a gigantic collection, but I have had them for quite a long time. I've uh, bred them for a while. I love that species. Um, I've also got uh, blood pythons, uh, which I'll go ahead and say python brong is my. I do not have any Britain's Dianae, um, but I also do have a pair of pumpkinhead Sumatrans, uh, and we can get deeper into that, but, you know, there's a, there's a lot of discussion on what that actually is. I think today they're actually classified as Curtis. Uh, there's quite a few right. people that think that probably should be a separate species or a minimum a subspecies. Um, but I do have a pair of those and, and love those things to death. And, and I'll probably talk a little bit more about those somewhere further for in sure. the show. Cause uh, I think there's a, a lot of room for that in, in the hobby. 
Um, I've also got um, um, Spotted Pythons, which hopefully this will be uh, first year for me producing Spotted. Cool. Be interesting. Um, I've got uh, walking into this other rack. I've got uh, Gila Monsters. I have produced those. I actually am getting another female coming in shortly. Um, so hopefully I'll have two females that potentially breed this year. And I produced one animal my first year producing. Um, that is, I'm pretty sure, a female. Uh, but uh, those are super interesting, and I'm super excited with those. <clears throat> um, I've got uh, some Peruvian boas. Uh, that were growing up, uh, so those are a little ways out. I've got hog island boas. I've actually got pure hog islands, and some my, all of my females are pretty unrelated to anything in the hobby because they came from the New York Zoo. Um, those right both of those girls actually have follicles developing. Um, I've seen the male heavily courting, not haven't caught them copulating, but uh, based on follicular development, I think they're going to go, which will be exciting. Um, I do have a trio of uh, double hat triangles. Um, those are breeding this year, so maybe I can make some. Um, I do have one pair left of Nicaraguan boas. So I've got a Nick female that was farmed that I, that I got from Ben Siegel in 06, and I love my. Probably soon. Um, I've also got a uh, tricolor hog nose. I've got a handful of western hogs. I suck at breeding those things, so I'm probably going to get rid of the last <laughs> two females I have. I've got an exantic male. I'll probably keep him because I really like him. I think he's pretty. Um, yeah. and, and then uh, I've got Kenyan sand boas. I uh, just had two litters of those born in the last three weeks. So I've got 42 baby Kenyans that are getting ready to come to market. Uh, I've got um, albino um, speckled king snakes that hopefully will be breeding this year. Uh, I've got quite a few corn snakes. I've got some uh, Puebla milk snakes. I actually think I determined this past year that I'm not really a milk snake guy, so I'm probably in the ones. I have a trio of albino tangerine hindernes. I'll keep those because I've always loved baby albino tangerines. They look like you plug them into the wall. Uh, so they're, they're right. really and, neat. Well, you've had hindernes for a while, right? Yeah, I've had that pair one of the nine years um the, that pair i don't think i was getting them cold enough for years so i didn't get my first clutch out of that female until she was seven years old um so okay. I, yeah i've had them a while but i've, I've just recently started producing um that's cool we've got yeah we've got uh I, i've had tons of people in the last three or four years ask about rosy boas. And the funny thing about that is almost all the people that ask me about rosy boas locally are women that are in their 60s. So it's just, I don't know why it's so interesting. But I get a kick out of, you know, gray-haired ladies that come up and ask me if where are all the rosy boas at. They had rosy boas 30 years ago. And I, it just, to me, it blows my mind that, 30 years ago, you know, in the, in the, in the 1980s and, and late seventies, 
you know, I don't think women were really associated with keeping snakes all that much. So it's kind of interesting that they ask. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I've always loved you know gray gray tones, black and white tones. Um, so I, I've got a pair of uh, Mexican Ortiz Rosy Boas that hopefully will breed this year. Um, I've got uh, some Brody line Thayeri. Uh, so hopefully right. we'll, we'll okay. have some very things here. Uh, what else is in that room that I'm missing? I know I got to be missing something else. Uh, oh, I do have a uh, Lampropelta Sonata Agama, so Sierra Juarez Mountain Kings, which I actually oh, right got on. a clutch last year. It didn't do great. I had one good egg, so I hatched my first Agama last year, which turned out to be a That's female. Awesome, so I'm man. growing her. Yeah, I'm super excited about that. I think we'll, we'll, I should get some more this year, and, and that's that's probably one of my favorites. Uh, and then are those uh, I've all the Martyr ones? Are those? Do you know what those ones are? Uh, I got like, them from uh, Rob Hansen, but I, oh, did I, you? I'd okay. Have to go back oh, yeah. And, yeah, I'd have to go back and look. I know I got all of the information from Rob when he sold them to me, um, but I, I I don't remember off the top of my head. Sure, but yeah, no, that's cool that they're coming and they're super straight, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, and I, you know, the cool thing was the female produced is um is almost perfectly symmetrical. So when when she hatched and I looked, I said she when it hatched, I was like, I don't care what sex it is, this thing is right. awesome. That's it's, awesome. Yeah, looking at how yeah, looking at how Rob grades his stuff, I was like, this thing would have probably been graded pretty high. So I didn't care if it was a male or female. I was going to keep it, but turning out to be female is, is pretty good. Um, <clears throat> I do. I, I didn't miss that in the other room while I was walking through them. I had. I've got uh, Brazilian rainbow boas. I got uh, three really gorgeous high red females from Brian Hummel a few years ago, and I uh, just picked up a male from Trace Harden this year. So hopefully next cool. year potentially we'll have some Brazilian rainbow boas. Uh, and then the last thing that I'm really super excited about, the really kind of an amusing story, um, but I, I, I sold some snakes to our local zoo a few years ago, which is how I met a bunch of my buddies at the zoo, um, because the zoo had contacted me. They needed some snakes for <clears throat> their education program. And, uh, you know, of course, to be able to sell to the zoo, you, you've got to be an AZA member or you at least have to be, uh, AZA accredited. Right. Yep. So I had to go through the whole non-AZA accredited process, which took about nine months. Had to get inspected, do all this good stuff. But the process sold them a bunch of stuff, and they said, hey, look, you know, the other thing we're really looking for is some Louisiana milk snakes. And I said, that's pretty funny. I said, uh, <laughs> everybody and their brother that I know from Louisiana wants Louisiana milk snakes. They're not rare, but they're extremely secluded and and reclusive sure. they're hard it's tough to find yep so i said i i said i'll keep my eyes out and the problem with you know selling to the zoo is you have to have provenance on the animals you have yeah. you have to be able to you know show it and that's typically where the problem comes in so i said man i i can't tell you anybody that's captive breeding uh louisiana milk so i don't know how that's going to work I said, but hey, I'd love to get a pair. I said, and if I can produce them, then it's easy. You know, I got Providence and, and sure. captive bread. And, so, you know, we'll see how that works. 
So lo and behold, fast forward, I don't know, probably about six or eight months, and I'm and I'm at a local snake show, and it's a Sunday, and it's like 4.10, and the show closes at 4 o'clock. And the show, promoter, <laughs> the show promoter walks up to him, and he goes, hey, man, I got this guy who needs to talk to somebody. And, and I said, oh, okay, well, bring him over. So the guy comes around the corner, and he goes, Tim. And the show promoter's like, well, oh, you know this guy? Lo and behold, it's a guy that I used to throw darts in a dart league like 15 years ago, and he was on my dart team. <laughs> okay. I, he didn't know I had snakes. I didn't know he had snakes. Well, he doesn't have snakes. He's just you know, old dude that had uh, a Louisiana milk snake forever and it died. And so when it died, he talked to one of his buddies. He's like, Hey man, my milk snake died. I really like another one. And the guy said, Hey, look, no problem. He said, I, I, I know where they are. I'll go catch you one. So he catches him, milk snake, uh-huh. brings it to him, feeds it, you know, tr- attempts to take care of it for a couple of months. And mind you, he's had a Louisiana milk snake for 10 years. So, uh, you know, that I take care sure. of him. He said, man, I think it's a thing to eat. The guy said, okay, no problem. He said, let me, I'll catch you another one and I'll let this one go. So he catches him another one, brings it to him. And so now he's had this milk snake for about six years. His daughter's 12 years old. So she's become really attached to it. So Lewis brings it to the show because he wants to try to find someone that can potentially breed it. Cause he said, you know, he doesn't know anything about it. He just said, Hey, I want to breed it. Cause I don't, I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to lose the heritage. You know? So sure. I said, oh, well, he pulls it out. I won't say exactly what it is or what I think it is, but it's a Louisiana milk snake. The couple of people who've seen it, were pretty sure it's a mutation. It does not look like a Louisiana milk snake, <laughs> but it is. And so here's this oh guy who's got this potential Louisiana really? milk snake mutation. Oh, my gosh. And he's had it as a pet for seven years, knows nothing about breeding. And I'm like, oh, hell, yeah, I'm going to take this thing. And he's right. like, oh, man, you know, they try to breed, do something. And, you know, I mean, I don't I don't care. Just I, you know, I just need a baby. I was like, hey, dude. And I'm looking at his daughter. Said, well, you, you might be able to send her through college with this. And he's like, are you serious? I'm like, oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, so now, now I'm on the hunt. It's a male. Now I'm on the hunt for a female. I spend a year right. trying to find a female. I barely ever have any time to go herping my own. So I, I'm trying to locate stuff. Lo and behold, I got a buddy of mine, semi-local, that's got a female. He won't give it to me to save his rear. I'm trying to do a breed alone, won't do it. He finally calls me after about nine months. He can't hardly get it to eat. And he said, dude, I got a customer who needs an albino ball. I had one. It died. It's for Christmas. I need it bad. I said, oh, you need it bad, huh? I said, I'll, I'll <laughs> trade you an albino ball male for a Louisiana milk snake female. He goes, done. So I got the female, and I got it, and lo and behold, I said, hey, dude, this thing eats like a horse. I said, but it'll only eat live. He can only feed frozen. So so anyway, uh-huh. so I had her for a year, uh, brumated her last year, tried to breed this year. I think she was still a little on the thin side or didn't feel ready, didn't do anything, but she pounded last year, and so she went into brumation this year looking really good. So that's probably what I'm going to be – the most super excited about this entire year is breeding that pair of milkshakes, <laughs> finding out a if I can man. produce my first ever Louisiana milks, and b uh, hey is this thing dominant or 
or if not, you know, we got to keep right. babies and try something recessive. But I, I got probably a, the zoo plus a pile of people that want anything that I've decided to release out of that. So I, it's fun. I don't even know if, if any of that will walk out the door. And, and poor Lewis, you know, brought me his animal, his pet, and I've had it for almost uh-huh. three years now. I'm like, hey, did you have it back whenever you want. It's yours. I mean, I can't. I can't hold it hostage. He's like, no, no, no. And, you know, so he's come up and seen him like two or three times. But I, I'd love to have some babies this year, even if I give him a, a baby that looks normal. You know, something for him to have something back in his house as a pet. But, you know, I mean, for people that know anything about Louisiana milks, I mean, they, they, they hatch smaller than tricolor hogs and hill pythons. So a lot of right. people don't breed them because they can't even eat a pinky mouse. So. They're definitely problematic to get started, but I, I don't mind tackling the burden because it, it just seems like a blast. Uh, so yeah, it's man. been all kind of excitement yeah. in that. It's one of those, I, to me, I think, and I heard y'all talking about that in the intro, the, the race that everyone has to do anything. And and I, and I think as a, as a general rule, people don't have appreciation anymore for, for the time that goes into waiting for something and waiting for that long-term project. And, you know, if you worked on something for five or six or seven or eight years and you see that first baby pip and hatch, it's nothing like what you're raced into. It's, it's a completely different feeling. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, your true ghost stuff was like that, right? Yeah, so, I mean, that was mostly just bad luck. Um, but, yes, it took me 10 years from when I bought my first double-hat pair until I produced my first one. And and then, you know, the the I've got 11 total double recessive projects working in, in some stage of the game. And it seems that, for me, it's, three years of production and however long it takes to get them up to size before I produce my first one. So this year was my, you know, I produced my first double-headed xanthic pies in 2009, and this was my first or my third year of production, and I finally hit my first one. So, uh, you know, nine years into xanthic pies, I finally made those. And, and I made double-head hypo clowns in 2011, this was my third year of hypo clown production and I still missed. So I still don't have hypo clowns. Uh, <laughs> my double hat lavender snow females are like, uh, I think I produced those in 11. So they're seven years old and they're like a uh, thousand grams. They eat work too. Oh so I, I haven't even bred those yet. So uh, yeah, I don't get in a hurry with double recessives because I learned my lesson long ago that, I, I just I don't have Ralph Davis luck. <laughs> so so that take a while. But but again that does roll right into that. I, I appreciate the heck out of hatching a double homozygous animal. I, I can't even imagine a triple homozygous and and we're and we're pretty close to that. You know working on that. So uh, true ghost pies may not be far away. Uh, but I. I uh, I can only hope I have better luck on that. <laughs> wow. Sure. We stack the odds on that, though. I'm not breeding triple hat to triple hat, so it, it helps. <laughs> right on. 
No, it's good to hear. I know you said uh, you'd have to cut out for a second. Are you? Are we getting towards that spot, or you still got a little bit? Yeah. I, yeah, I wanted to finish that story, but I actually just pulled into my driveway. So yeah, if y'all uh, if y'all can ramble on for about five to ten minutes and let me uh, dump all my stuff in the house and walk out to the building, I'll get on my landline out there. Right on. Cool man. Yeah. Yep, I'll uh, I'll ping back in in about five five to eight minutes, likely. Gotcha. Uh, actually, I'm gonna tell you what, y'all give me a. I forgot to mention other species I got. I do have uh, one, two, three, four species of tortoises, and it's uh, I'm looking now. It's 49 degrees in my house, so I gotta go make sure everybody's in the hot house. So give me an extra like two minutes, and uh, I can you have a little tort discussion yeah. when I start too. But let me throw, <laughs> make sure the biggest one. I gotta make sure the Aldabras are in there, uh, and uh, and the uh, Redfoots, the the elongateds. I don't worry too much about, but gotta throw everybody in there, make sure they got some warmth because it's supposed to get 36 miles tonight. So I'll call you okay. back though in about 10 minutes. You got it. All right, cool man. All right, guys, we'll be back on in a bit. All right. Cool. So. Yeah, I uh I'm I'm curious to talk uh I stepped away for a minute, Rob, but I don't know if you guys hit on any short tail talk yet or not, but uh the pumpkin head Sumatran no, we're just, we're uh, just rambling, man. Yeah. talk was uh <laughs> was interesting to me. Um Yeah. You know, no, he and I were talking a... about that a little bit last week and yeah, no, uh-huh. I'm I'm with him, I agree, and it's you know, he should get those views out there. Okay. All you right. still have so, those from Trace, right? Yeah, they're badass, man. They're starting to you're starting to change a little bit, you know. Um, like when I first got them, they kind of looked very Borneo-ish to me, you know. Um, uh-huh. I guess it's probably the head. And when I'm thinking Sumatran, sure, um, I'm thinking of that black, you know. You did. You got the pumpkin ones, not the not the black blacks. Yeah, I got the pumpkin heads. Right. So. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So. Uh, curious to hear about that that reptile building though man if you get a chance you should go to his uh facebook page and he did a uh a video on it and just showing uh you know how what is built you know immediately in my head you kind of walk in there's like this fancy made desk and you know i'm thinking wow that would be cool right python radio right in there <laughs> you know and then right. you walk right into your building and there's your snakes and yeah so uh cool stuff for sure for sure but uh yeah i don't know yeah man i i, I also kind of i also kind of geek about i know i know we weren't going to talk about any ball pythons or anything but you know we want to talk about his other stuff but i just find it interesting that perspective of you know listen to it 10 years ago and like what everybody was saying and now 10 years forward you know how it is you know what i mean like yeah oh yeah i I mean it's the same it's the same well except for you you know because it it's harder for you to listen i'd imagine you know going back to yourself but it's the same thing as going back to your early episodes and you know, still talking about Jags. I was just listening to one the other day where Omax saying, 
well, you know, I'm not going lower than $300 a jag, no matter what the <laughs> heck this thing looks like, and all this stuff, you know, and it's like, it's yeah. sort of fun, you know, I mean, yeah. the content is great on so many of these, you know, but at the same time, those shows can be a lot of fun, you know, those round table, early round table shows and all that stuff, it's, it's fun to listen to, you know, and just be like, okay, well, stuff's changed, you know, it's like a time machine, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's basically yeah. it. It's hopping in the time machine and being like, okay, this is where, where everyone was at. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely cool. And you know, you've you've been in like the breeding side of it longer than I have, but um, so it's probably even more nostalgic for you because I mean, you're going back to the early 2000s, right? Or probably even before that. Uh, yeah, like, you know, seriously on King Snake since it started, you know, seeing all the stuff, seeing everything that goes through and all that stuff. So at 90. You know, I had baby turtles and I had, you know, leopard geckos and stuff. But, like, seriously interest, I remember picking up – you remember those old reptile magazine annuals? Um, yeah. I remember that first yep. one from – it was the 98 one. So I had gotten it, like, winter – you know, fall, winter, 97, something like that, whenever it had come out. And before that, you know, I just had the Audubon Field Guide to North American Snakes, you know, because that was the best thing <laughs> I could get, you know? Right. At least, you know, in my spot. I know there was plenty of other books and stuff, but that was sort of, you know, that's what I had. And then got that the magazine and then found some of the older books and all that stuff. And, yeah, no, it, it takes me back, you know, and it, it, I I enjoy it, you know. And I think that's, at least for you and I, I know we're on the same page with this, where it's like that's at least, you know, I don't know if I'd say it's half the fun, but it's, it's some portion for sure. Oh, yeah, no doubt. You know, it's what those things meant to you at the time. You know, I have those uh, Puerto Rican boas, and it's like, I remember, I still remember, there was, uh, and I have that magazine now, there was a, a story on them from December 98, and just the regular reptiles, and it was like, man, you can't even get these things, you can't sell them, well, all this stuff, I'll never have these things, and it's like, you know, you, my female right now, you know, my big female, you know, and it's just like, that's a part of, you know, what makes that so interesting to me? I can't separate the two things, you know? Yeah. You know, I'm always on the kick about perspective, but you know, it's, it's like, uh, I, I often question myself because I wonder like, man, you know, I was here at, from this time to this time. And this is what I see, you know, this is how I view the world and, you know, not taking into consideration you know, before me and what their perspective is like, you know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? Like, the, right, you know, sure. when, when, yeah. when the first carpet pythons were, were being bred and, um, you know, when you get in jungles like in the early nineties and late eighties, early nineties. Sure. Yeah. I mean, heck, yeah. when the first brettles were here, like I know talking to guys who are a generation, generation and a half older than me, you know, zoo guys. And they're like, Oh yeah, we we definitely had brettles, but we just called them, you know, they were just red carpet pythons, you know, they're breeding them <laughs> into everything and whatever. Right. They were attempting to, you know, I don't know how well it was working without giving them a hard cool and whatever, but I mean, that's a species described in 80, but I mean, the internet was not the internet in the way that we know it, you know, at that point. So it's like, here these guys are just red carpet pythons. Right. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's funny, you know, it's, yeah. it's both funny. And then you're like, 
man, I hope they didn't have success because I don't want those things to be floating around in my old school coastals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. You know. Yeah, and you know that's that's where the whole yeah purity thing comes up, and that's often what I think. Uh, let's say my generation, you know, kind of forgets. <laughs> you know, you know. Sure. Um, well, I mean, that's um, and Tim mentioned he's got Theriot, you know, from uh, Dave Bloody, you know, who was uh, who passed away within the last year, eighteen months, and you know, who was a zookeeper down in Texas and did a lot of great things and is well known for, you know, a lot of colubrid stuff. And um, that's the problem is, you know, heck, listen to those roundtable things. It's the same thing. Oh, well, you do you and you only worry about yourself and all this stuff. And it's like, sure, but Mexico has been closed since the mid 80s, right? So any theri that we have now have been, at least on those, they're not smuggling those things because they're they are captive bred and whatever so it's like we really are talking about (laughs) there you go nick's right those we are talking about f6 x f7 those sorts of things and it's like um you know with those things if someone had mixed a greer eye with their eye back in 1988 like i'm not going to know that you know i I just right you know and it just makes it so that unless you can really trace that stuff back chondro style you know, this whole way and know what he, with pictures, which you won't have and with information, which you won't have, you know, even if, I mean, heck, a lot of our lineage is just, oh, Madam Blueberry. Well, we don't really know, as far as I know, what that snake was. Like, do we know what the pairing was that made that one? Or we just say that's animal one, you know, and that's where it starts. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, at least when we're talking Theri and stuff more than the carpets, you'd look at that and say, well, okay, but what about the great beyond, beyond that? You know, we know it goes to something, and we don't know what that was. You know, and I can't right. look at it and say, oh, well, this was, you know, I think that maybe that's a cross or whatever. And maybe it was crossed, quote, crossed at a time when they didn't even know they were different. I mean, there was, I know it was on uh, the From the Ground Up pod with Stu Tennyson recently, but it's like they thought that gray bands were two different species. The Blair Eye and the Alterna, the one with the wide bands and then the pin banded ones, you know, right. like until they hatched right. out a clutch where they were both of them in the same one, you know, from a wild caught female. And then we're like, oh, okay, it turns out that, you know, some locales you get both, some locales it's one, some locales it's the other, but they're, they're the same species, you know, they, right. did, they didn't know that. So if you, you can have stuff where it's like, it wasn't an intentional effort to make something weird. It was just that they... You know, pre-1980, and that's if you found the description, you wouldn't say those were hybrids with brettles into a coastal, you know, because they're just Spilota. <laughs> yeah, you know I mean? yeah, exactly. Yeah. They were just doing um, their thing, you know, that that was subsequent. Right. And now we do it on purpose. <laughs> right. Now we're going to make some scream jags. Where are you at, Kevin? Yeah. Right. All right. Tim's back. Let's get Tim back on. Hey, Tim. Hey, I'm here. Oh, Sorry good, about good, that. Good. Did, no worries. I did have, no worries. I did have a delay. Uh, <clears throat> that's an extreme rarity. But I uh, I got out there and one of the Aldabras decided that the mud pond was better than the house. Which, oh. Uh, that happens like maybe twice a year. So uh, <laughs> that's no Not no easy fun. to move, right? No. There, and, and that's been my fear is that I got to 
sneaking hunch that I'm only about maybe two years away from that's the end of picking them up. And then, of course, it you know in a mud pile, and they're so. If anyone that doesn't know anything about tortoises, uh, it's time to sleep. Then they push in the corners. So one of my mud piles is against the corner of the wall, and they've they don't dig, but they've waddled enough that they can push into the wall. And uh, so you got to pull them away from the wall first, and then get them out of that mud suction. At the bus, so, yeah, that was that was uh, not a lot of fun. I think uh, <laughs> my Aldabras are 11 years old now, so they're they're pushing right at. I haven't weighed them, but they got to be close to just under 100 pounds, 85, 90 pounds. So they're oh, wow. they're getting to the they're getting to the point where they're not fun to deal with when they don't want to be dealt with. Right. Wow. <laughs> Holy shit. Seven children, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Let's, um, I, I, I'm excited. Yeah, do you want to hop into the blood stuff? Yeah. Or do you want to do Angolans it. first? We got plenty of stuff here, man. No. Wherever, wherever to run. What, what, whatever y'all want to, whatever y'all want to go to. Let's, uh, let's, let's, I'm going to jump in there and I'm, I'm curious, I'm, I'm excited to talk uh, Angolans. Uh, often, okay. um, often neglected. I think uh, you know. I think people pass them off as just a odd-looking ball python, or as Owen calls them, a bumpy ball python. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe talk about you know the care and you know your your experiences with breeding them and you know stuff like that. Sure. So so I can say it to start off at least with care. Um, I. You know, the way I keep them and the way I, I, I think I originally learned and heard uh, and, and then looking at range maps, I mean, they they actually do overlap ranges with ball pythons. Um, so from a, from a care perspective, I pretty much keep them just like a ball python. Um, they, they actually, my, my breeding pair stays in one of my CB70 racks you know, with ball pythons above them, ball pythons to the right and left of them, they're in that same cage. Uh, they're in, in, and they're in a CB70. You know, my original female, uh, now that I'm in my building, it's great because I can walk and look at dates and stickers and know everything exactly. But my original female is uh, not, excuse me, nine years old. Um, so she is fairly large, but she fits in a CB70 really would not a, would not a problem not an issue um okay but I, I i do keep them at those same temperatures now you know my my ball python racks and i guess i can touch a little bit on ball pythons for the people that do want to listen uh and especially since you know the angolans are <laughs> yeah are, no worries man well uh, since the angolans are, are are subjected to the same thing the balls are so they don't have a choice uh, but i i know sure. a lot of people um, probably have questions as well regarding <clears throat> light cycles, temperature cycles, night drops, all that good stuff. Um, right. Years ago, I used to change all of that stuff, run through quote unquote cycles, um, and then it, it it just became difficult with everything was going on. And then you know, once I got an ultrasound and was able to look at females and find out that <clears throat> my females were starting to spread out and there wasn't a season anymore. I mean, I. I get eggs year-round. I think in the last 
six or seven years, my incubator has been empty for like two days. Um, wow. So, uh, you know, my light cycle, my lights come on at six in the morning. They go off at eight in the evening every day. It, it never changes year round. Um, my hot spots are set, you know, on my inky, on my uh, thermostats, my heat, my hot spots are set at about 92 to 93 degrees, which equates to about 90 degrees hot spot on the inside. My room, it is a fairly big room, and, you know, I do have, even though I'm in south Louisiana, I do get somewhat of a decent temperature swing. I mean, like I said, it's going to be 36 tonight. Um, so my room will fluctuate between about 78 sure. and 84 degrees, but my ideal target is 80 to 82. Um, so so that's, you know, what my Angolans are exposed to, and that's kind of why I went down that long route. So they're about 80 to 82 degrees on the cool side. I do find that they spend a lot more time up on the cool side, so I suspect that if you really wanted to put them in a, a vision you know, a vision cage, or if you want to do something on your own, you probably could give them slightly lower temperatures than what you would for a ball python. Um, I, I, okay. I rarely find them on the hot side, so I don't think they really need 90 degrees. They'd probably be fine with something uh, more along the lines of 86, 88. Um, yep. And, and, but, you know, the cool side, obviously, from my perspective, the cool side's not bad. I do get production from my animals. To me, copulation and production always equates to you're providing correct husbandry, or else they wouldn't be happy. They wouldn't. Sure. Use, they wouldn't breed. Um, but uh, are you doing any food cycling, or do you feed consistently throughout the year, or do they kind of do it themselves? They'll fa- feast and famine. So, are we talking specifically about Angolans, or are we talking about ball pythons? Either of those two. Okay. Or so both. I will say to Angolans. My Angolans, I think, never miss a meal. That is a huge <laughs> difference between Angolans and ball pythons. Um, right. I would say if if my females miss a meal, it's right around egg laying, but they will actually eat even after ovulation. Um, wow, okay. The males will never miss a meal. Um, so that is a big difference. Uh, when we talk ball pythons, I do have a little different view on that, and, and, and I actually got that from, and that goes way back. That's some more of that nostalgia stuff, uh, and, and I believe he was probably on Reptile Radio way back when, but Adam Wasaki at 8-Ball Pythons, um, I used to uh-huh. really like Adam. I was good friends with Adam, talked to him a good bit. He's the one that kind of turned me on to that, but he never feeds a ball python anything over a small rat, and, and I'm I'm at that point now. And what happens, at least in in theory, is even large females, if you feed them a small rat, they're always a little hungry. So you find, I find that if you feed them something a little bit smaller, they actually go off a feed for a shorter period of time or not at all. Um, Now, I still have plenty of ball pythons go off a feed. I don't know that you'll ever get away from that, but but I think it helps feed them something a little bit smaller. Um, The the one difference, I think, with Angolans, and I actually learned this from a Another customer who's who's local to me um, that actually I sold quite a few of his Angolans because he's just he's a quiet guy does breeding on his own doesn't really ever get out there and sell stuff so he'd bring me all his Angolans I'd sell them uh, and I and I I can dive into that a little further later too but um, <clears throat> he's the one kind of taught me this but Angolans right after they lay uh, I'll actually feed my Angolan female like jumbo rats something that looks entirely too large for her. 
Uh, and uh-huh. they, big female Angolans will eat some pretty large meals uh, and, huh. and pack their weight back on. And we'll continue to feed that. I haven't quite gone down the road with them like I have really paid attention to corn snakes and blood pythons or short tails. I think right. I know for a fact, uh, and, and talking to Tracy and looking at when I had a larger collection of bloods, uh, I think you can get them overweight, and I know for a fact you can get right. fat stores and overweight colubrids and corn snakes in particular because sure. I, I did it on accident before feeding, uh, you know, a corn snake some some rat pups. Um, I'm not sure if Angolans will get that way because typically once I feed some of those jumbos, really get some weight back on, then I back off. But they will eat every week. So I suspect they may get there, but I don't know. You you may not be able to get them there. I just haven't wanted to push the limit and try to find where it is, so I didn't really think it was necessary. Um, gotcha. That makes sense. But Do you, you – know, um, Go ahead. No. Well, I was just going to ask if you – because the other, you know, same <laughs> – man, we're hitting nostalgia tonight. I was just going to ask if you knew, you know, where where yours were from and if, if you knew further back on the Angolan stuff because I know – what it was Al Zulich and Casey and that that was it, you know, and there were a couple theoretical lines or whatever and I just don't see that you know, see that marked down at this point on anybody's stuff, yep. you know, and maybe so, it's just lost. So I don't know. Interesting you go there, because when I said there was a longer discussion on Angolans, that's part of where I was gonna go. Um so oh. I can say that my original pair of Angolans I bought from Sean at Exotics by Nature. Um right. from his original group, which was, I think Sean might have brought in more, but he ended up keeping 1.2 or 1.3 Angolans. Those animals came straight from Casey um, pretty early on to when Casey got that stuff. So it it was pretty on. I can trace mine at least directly back to there. Got mine directly from Sean. Um, My male and my female obviously came from the same male because Sean only had one male. They did come from different clutches, so at least different dames. Um, But the first year I bred my Angolans, um, I had a clutch. I want to say my first clutch was six, six eggs. I'm almost positive. Out of those six animals, I had four perfect animals, and I had two animals with issues. One of them was a male, and the male was born with one eye. And the other one was a female, and she had both her eyes, but one of them was extremely swollen. So I had a customer that was a long-term customer, had been buying tons of ball pythons with me, didn't have a lot of money, didn't make a lot of money, always wanted an angle, and I said, hey, look, I'm going to sell you this male for really cheap because you always wanted one. It's only had a male. It wasn't going to breed. It was a pet. So you know, I practically gave him that animal. And then the female, um, I had I had done some reading before, and I had a, sus- a suspicion of what was going on with this female. And uh, so my buddy who was the veterinarian at the Audubon Institute, uh, he's not there any longer. He's moved on uh but um, I, I called him, and I said, hey, you know, come have a look at this animal. He came over, he looked at it, and said, hey, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't mind messing with it. Let me take her. Let me see what I can do. One of his best buddies is actually the head veterinarian at Animal Kingdom uh, at, at Disney. Uh, so sure. he called on the phone, talked to him. And so sure enough, there's actually there's a duct that that connects the eye 
uh, and this is in almost every python species, connects the eye to the inside of the mouth in between, uh, like, uh, you know, the gums and the, and sure. the uh-huh. lip, and, and it, it drains fluid. And so that duct was either clogged uh, or just smaller in size. So the first thing they did with this girl was they went in there and they just, for lack of a better term, went in with a with a reamer, a drill bit, and just you know reamed right. and drilled it out and opened it up. And the eye drained and everything was great because it was really just fluid between the lens and the eyeball. You could still see the pupil and you could see everything in there, but the lens was really swollen. So that worked for quite a while. Uh, and then it came back because, you know, once that healed, scar tissue built up or whatever the sure. issue was built back up. Um, so eventually what they ended up doing is, you know, he called his buddy uh, and he walked him through, you know, putting her putting her to sleep and removing the eyeball. So they removed the eye. Uh-huh. Um, and so I still have her now. She's uh, She is four years old now, doing great. Um, no problems with her. Uh, I'm probably going to breed her. Uh, just because I want to see what's going to happen. Sure. I, I have this feeling that it's not genetic, but my fear of breeding those animals that were that closely related scared me enough that I sold my male. Um, I actually, before I sold him, I went looking for something a little bit older. So I ended up buying a male that was about a year and a half old, uh, and once I got him in my collection, I looked at him. You know, he had some some great peen development um did have some sperm plugs but i wasn't really worried about that i really wanted to see how his peens looked and development of peens and uh, they look good so i said hey you know i'm gonna go ahead and sell my male and try to use this male to breed so uh i'm not going to go down the road of who i got it from because i did have issues with that male still have issues with that male uh but you know we talked we worked out everything's okay um, but what happened with this male is, uh, you know, I would feed him and he would regurgitate a lot. And I mean, I've actually had him now for about three and a half years. He's probably gained two or three hundred grams. So I, yeah. I, I just, I, I've never been able to determine what's wrong with him. But I did breed him that year, and I got a clutch. So he bred, and that's kind of why I was like, hey, look, you know, he he met the goal of what I'm trying to do. Sure. Um, so I'm fine with it, um, but he hasn't been the strongest breeder, and he definitely has got some kind of health issue that I can't determine what it is. We've done fecals on him. We've, you know, I've treated him with Fladro, I've treated him with Pancure, tried to rebuild gut biome, tried to do all kind of stuff, and, you know, whatever. Uh, if I feed him something really small, he does well. I try to alternate every week, one mouse this week, you know, two weeks, I'll give him a small rat, then I'll give him a mouse, and you hold some stuff down, and then every now and again, about every three, four months, my employee says, hey, regurged, and so I'll give him a couple of weeks off, and so whatever, I'm nursing him mm-hmm. along trying to get to breeding. Um, but when I bred him to her, I didn't have any problems with the clutch. You know, Now, I want to say, hey, maybe they were too closely related, but back to your original point is there isn't that much diversity in Angolans that were ever brought into the U.S., so you just sure. can't get that much diversity. I don't care if you bought from someone that bought their animals from two different people. They can be traced right. back right. to one of a couple of animals. Exactly. But for the sake yeah. of trying, I didn't want to repeat an issue. Let me try. I at least tried. and So now I've got good production out of those animals with, with no problems, so I'll keep on down that road. Now, my buddy locally, you know, I kept selling all his Angolans for him. So finally, he actually got one animal, uh, two separate animals from two different people. So, and actually looking at them, I think they're 
I think there's potentially some, I don't want to say mutations. It may just be line breeding derivations, but (laughs) he's produced some animals that are very laterally striped, which is interesting. Uh, and, And I think there's something to do there with Angolans. And I don't think enough people are producing them. Enough people are looking close at them, but, you know, it's it's like a yellow belly ball python or, you know, any of those really subtle genes. Mm-hmm. There may be something there, and we just haven't clued into it yet. But anyway, he well, gave me... Well, there's definitely really nice ones and ones that aren't as nice. You know you know what I mean? Like, even <laughs> oh, yeah. Looking at it, this, well, and, and in the so same there way. Is where... a, there, I think there's a difference in coloration between blacks and reds. Um, mm-hmm. But he gave me a male one year for selling all of his stuff. So I have another male growing up. He should be ready next year, so I'll probably replace my male with that one, which will be great because then that male is completely as unrelated as I can get it from either sure. one of my females or any of my stuff, so we'll see how it works. But the male that I got from him is extremely dark. He doesn't have a lot of red. It's mostly black and yellow, which will be interesting huh. to incorporate that in there. But back to listening to you guys' intro to funny things about Angolans, and I remember even before I got mine, when Angolans first hit the scene, they were 3500 bucks a piece. And I remember right. all those people that bought Angolans, and it was a lot of ball python people. And so at three years old, my Angolans aren't breeding. And then mm-hmm. uh, at four years old, my Angolans aren't breeding. Man, fuck this. And they sold them. Right. And the lucky people that yeah. bought those four-year-old Angolans, all they had to do was take care of them for a year. Because it seems to me, <laughs> from my experience, the magic number is Angolan females are going to breed at five years old. And I tell people when they buy baby Angolans from me, I'm like, hey, look, um, don't even try until four years old. And go ahead now and plan five years old. So if you want to start your Angolan breeding project, you're five years away. I hope you got a little bit of patience. Um, right, right. That seems oh. to be where they go for me. The other funny thing with Angolans, up until last year, and last year I think we had a little bit more diversity in the amount of people producing, and I talked to a few more people that I noticed that were producing Angolans that I've never seen do that before, but there was two interesting facts up until last year that I thought I had locked in on. One was that an Angolan, even as big as they get, because they'll get bigger than a ball, um, is that they'll never lay – 10 eggs. They'll never lay double digits. And then last right. year, I heard of a clutch that was 11. Happened to be somebody that I did know. I talked to him, and sure enough, they did. So I, that was a, but but I, I'd love, I can't wait to see what they do this year, or if it takes a year off what they do next year to see if that's a consistency thing, or was that a fluke? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause I rarely, I've never gotten more than, uh, I want to say I got nine eggs once out of mine, but it's almost eight eggs every year. So it's pretty right, consistent, that's eight I, or nine. That's, I think that's what I've heard, eight. Yeah, yeah you know, eight's the you number, get. basically. The other funny thing with it is I can't say that they're sex-linked, but up until last year, everyone I had talked to, everyone, every single clutch, no one had ever been able to report to me that they produced more females than males. You were either hmm. just close to 50-50 or male-heavy. So for the longest time, you know, and, and I talked to some other people produce them, I just, I marked females way higher than males. You know, if you right. wanted a decent price, right. you had to buy a pair. And, and you know, once I, once, I, once I ran out of, you know, you had to buy pairs, 
and that was it. And I wouldn't sell lone females, and people wanted lone females because sure. everyone came from ball pythons or other ball python pythons. One, and, and they wanted one, a, one, three, one, four. Yep, sure. A trio, one, three, and I was like, oh, dude, hey, feel free. Then you buy, you know, you buy four point four and sell three and males. And sell the extra male. Pet, <laughs> you're golden, but I'm not selling them to you because they just won't do it. And then last year I heard of a couple of clutches, but even those clutches were like maybe sixty forty. So right. I, I don't true. I don't know. I mean, you know, because enough people aren't producing, and surely the people that are producing aren't collecting enough data to know what are potential sure. exterior triggers for that. And this kind of goes to some of Ari's discussion because I did go listen to Ari's Bullen's, you know. Uh, discussion is is there potentially some temperature fluctuations is there something temperature wise is there something humidity wise is there something that we're doing that's the same as a ball python that potentially could be affecting that i don't know i don't know that enough people are paying that close of attention to it because most people just want to produce some angolans because the demand is still high i mean i sell them as fast as i make them i, I can't right. make enough of them at the same time i, I love the species so much that I, I, you know, I've heard some people go, dude, I'm gonna fill a rack with them, and I go, uh, go ahead. I hate to hear you say that, but you know, I've got 2.2, and that's all I want. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think I have a problem if I make 15 or 16 Angolans every year, and I sell all of them. I think that's great. I, I don't, I don't right. know that I want to get to the point. That. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I want to get where I've got a hundred of them. Uh, I, sure. I just I think if I made a hundred, I probably wouldn't sell them all. Although I don't know that I just wouldn't say, hey, if I made a hundred and I didn't sell them all, well then I just won't breed them until I'm out. And once I'm out, breed right. them again. That's another way to go with it as well. But but it's one of those. There's no mutations. You know, there's only you know there's only a handful of snakes, in my opinion, left that are really embedded in the hobby that don't have mutations. Um, and and those most of those animals are beautiful animals. That's why people keep them, because otherwise everything's been mutation driven. Um, sure. But uh, you know, hey, don't overproduce them. There's no need for it. So uh, you know, at, at least if they get overproduced, uh, I wasn't a contributor to it. But I, I love the species. They're super amazing. I've never ever been bit by my Angolans, ever. No matter how hard you try. Um, most of them are extremely vocal. They love to hiss. They like to make a lot of noise, but I've never been bit. Um, they're, they're more like Burmese in the way that they don't have a V-shaped spine. They've got a Y-shaped spine. They've got beaded scales. They, I mean, they truly just don't even seem like they belong in the genus um, if you really pay attention to the anatomy and to the animals. They almost don't belong, but... But they are, but but they're really a, a very interesting, cool python, and I think I would probably steer a lot of people to, hey, if you just told me everything you wanted in a snake, and and I could determine that you really zeroed in on what you're looking for as a python, and you're not concerned with spending a couple of dollars on something that's super interesting, I would love to sell you an Angolan before I sold you a ball python if you really just want a pet because it's you know, manageable as far as size goes, um, right. but just way more inquisitive, seem to be a little bit more intelligent, like a retic or a berm uh, or or even a, a, a Britstein I Curtis, uh, you know, they, they seem to be more attentive, intelligent, pay attention, and just a really cool species. They really are. And I think we're almost to that point where they're at a price point, you know, four or 500 bucks 
um, that, that that's not a bad pet animal if someone's really looking for just a cool pet. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, really I, cool. I love mine, I see, man. They're freaking awesome. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, um, Rob. Terry posted in it, no, you're cool, man. Terry posted in the chat that I guess the Barker's first clutch in their their paper. They said they did get two four, so that that's one. Oh um, wow! Okay. But I was gonna say, yeah, I mean, so I, I don't remember that, but I'm sure you know Terry's looking at it. Um, but uh, I was gonna say, certainly with rhinos and cocci going from the you know late 90s stuff, they were cooking the eggs at 81, 82, and getting that same thing: two males for every female. And if you pop them down to 78 then you get 50-50. And if you right. <laughs> do them real low, like I've done occasionally on the rhinos, like, man, you can get 100% female, you know, if you're talking yeah. low 70s, that sort of stuff. Um, so I think it's conceivable. We don't think of pythons that way, but, I mean, heck, as you say, these are a, a different thing, and maybe even if it was 86.5 or something, that maybe it'd be more even. Who knows? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I, I listened to completely diving off of this because I – so I, I drive to work uh, an hour in the morning, and depending on traffic, an hour and 15 to an hour and 45 in the evening. So I listen to a lot of podcasts, uh, and, and I, I dive off to the other end and listen to stuff that's not really snake-related. So um, I was just listening to a podcast the other day, which most people, if they do any kind of podcast, they know who Joe Rogan is. I, I listen to a lot of JRE. Love them. Um, <laughs> Yep, but but Joe had a podcast the other day uh, with Bert Weinstein, who's been on quite a bit lately, and he's the professor from Evergreen College. Um, yep. You know, and, and but him and his wife were on the other day, and lo and behold, I didn't know that they were both evolutionary biologists. And uh, if anyone's got any interest whatsoever in evolutionary biology, it was a extremely interesting podcast. But to me, even for reptile people, I think a lot of reptile people would probably like at least the first 30 to 45 minutes because they run through a lot of evolutionary biology and specifically because they taught in a college that was really focusing on um, LGBTQ community and how we view sexuality as humans now, they have to dive back to evolutionary biology and how sexuality works in other animals. And so it's funny. They started talking about asexuality potentially in other animals and cloning and parthogenesis in animals. Um, But but there was a comment that Bert made in there about him thinking that all reptiles can do it in some form or fashion. Right. Under certain circumstances. And so when he said that, and then he went on to say that he thought that all reptiles and amphibians can be potentially incubatorily sexed, I was like, man, that's interesting, because I don't know that we try hard enough or document enough to know that. And I said, you know, we've heard, like you just said, in certain species of snakes, we know it potentially can play a part. So I don't know if we can't really do it in all snakes, but I don't know that people have tried to really test the limits of everything, and especially when you start talking about asking someone to do something with a ball python, and uh, you know, all of a sudden it's a well, hey, that egg right there could be a twenty thousand dollar snake. No one really wants to try to find out where the limit is. Um, right. I mean, I, 
I remember doing that years ago, and there's a there's an old post on ballpythons.net that I did because I used to not mind doing science projects, and someone had asked, you know, hey, can you rotate ball python eggs? And everyone used to say no, and everyone used to put straws and toothpicks and make sure they didn't roll and mark the top. <laughs> and, you know, so I'm sitting here trying to find, like, okay, where's the clutch that I don't care if I screw up something really big in here? And and so I, I found a clutch, and, I mean, there was, I, I want to say it was a while back, but I want to say it was a spider clutch. So it still could have been potentially something, but it was spider to normal, and it was a big clutch. I was like, well, maybe it's a normal I'm screwing up. But I, so I took an egg, and I flipped it after seven days in the incubator. And then I took another egg after 14 days, and I flipped it 180 degrees. And then after 30 days, I took another egg. You know, so all separate eggs flipped at different stages of incubation, and they all hatched. So I said, okay, huh. but, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily want to do that because you may kill it. Um, so, so, you know, I don't know that, that now we may not get people that want to do that science project unless you can talk to someone that breeds their normal to their normal. And a lot of big breeders don't even have that ability anymore. And a lot of small breeders or hobbyists <laughs> say, hey, I want to watch my babies hatch. So they're more attached to it than the breeder that wants to make a ton of money because they've got an emotional attachment. So it's hard sometimes to generate that science, I think. But, but, but I do wonder if, you know, there is some of that ability, at least some people who, hey, definitely way more educated than me, um, biologists at least, that say, hey, they, they think there's potential for that to occur in, in all reptiles and amphibians, then, hey, you know, it's possible that if we played with the environment, we could have an, more of an impact than, than we, we think. So sure. it's definitely interesting. Yeah, I agree. That was a good episode. That's really cool. <laughs> oh, did you, you, did <laughs> I didn't you know if you had time to listen, Eric. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, yeah, I love Joe Rogan's podcast, and I did listen to that episode, and I, I had the same thoughts when it happened. Yeah. I was like, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that, that was that was a really good – it's my buddy who's, you know, he's a veterinarian, uh, PhD candidate at LSU, and – I was telling him he's like, oh, I'm going. I'm going to listen to it on the way home because he was he was over here. Uh, funny thing, I guess he was over here because he had called me last week and he's like, Hey man, look, I got a teacher in school, and she's looking for some. She wants to she wants to incubate some eggs in the classroom. You got anything? And I'm like, oh, Dude, I said, You know, I said, Funny you ask. I said, I got. I just pulled redfoot eggs. I said, The problem is, you know, they like incubate for four months so i'm right. like dude it's february i'm like dude it's gonna be summer like the kids won't get to watch them hatch that don't work i'm like right. i don't know what I, I said dude i got ball python hatching right now i said not that doesn't work something i was like oh wait hold on dude i got a ball python collection incubator perfect it's gonna hatch in like 10 days you can grab that one he goes oh you sure and i'm like yeah but kind of maybe i was like you know i don't yes you can take them i said but please tell her to take a picture when they hatch. And he goes, why? I said, well, because it could have, like, first-in-the-world animals in there. He goes, are you kidding me? And I go, yeah, but it's posset to posset, so it probably won't, but it might. So tell her when they pip to, like, send me a picture so I know what they are. You know, but Mm -hmm. still, it was cool enough. I was like, yeah, it's posset to posset. I probably won't produce, and it's potential for tri-stripes in there. I haven't made tri-stripes. I was like, so uh, that'll be cool if, you know, I make a tri-stripe in there. I said, but it'll probably be cool for those kids to watch stuff hatch. I said, so, dude, it's the only thing I got, you know, I don't know if you'll find anyone. I said, just just take that clutch of eggs, you know, take that, bring it over there. So he came over yesterday or Sunday, 
picked him up, put him in a hoverbater, you know, drove over to the school, brought it over there. But it's one of those, like, you know, a lot of people probably wouldn't do that. And I'm like, dude, it's probably better for those kids to watch that than for me to watch it. I've seen it a billion times. Likelihood right. is probably going to be some pastels and normals hatch out of there, and I won't I won't hit the tri-stripe on either side of it, so who cares? So, yeah, bring those over there. Cool. Um, That's awesome, man. Go ahead, Rob. Okay, cool. Do you want to uh, let's dive in? Both the bloods, bloods past, bloods present, and then the pumpkinhead stuff, man. Yeah, let's no. Just let so, it roll. Sure. So bloods past. That all started with that was one of the big hey let's you know, and that was kind of around the time I really had a turning point with the ball pythons. Started you know really making good money. Um, the building was built, which, you know, for people that did wonder, I've got about 90000 in the building. I paid for it as I went. So no credit cards, no loans, no anything. So the ball python business was making money on its own, paying for the building, but I wasn't able to invest back into animals, racks. It was infrastructure is what I was investing in. Sure. So I probably went about two to three years, and I didn't buy a lot of snakes which I will say for anyone listening to that piece is it was great to build a building. It was definitely slightly detrimental to, you know, keeping up with the market and producing some cool stuff. I had to make sure I was producing my own cool stuff, but I wasn't bringing in anything new. So it was definitely a little bit of a balancing act. Um, But once the building was built, and that was all paid for, and the money started accumulating again in the account. It was like, okay, I want to get something else. Let's move somewhere else, but let's do it somewhat investment style. So, right. you know, that was pretty close to the inception of Batiks and Golden Eyes. Um, I called Tracy, had some really lengthy conversations with Tracy uh, about, hey, here's the two genes I like. You know, where can I go with it? What's your opinion? What can I do? And Tracy really steered me towards GoldenEye. Um, you know, so, okay, fast forward to the shows. Time to buy a GoldenEye. Uh, so I got a GoldenEye, and, and me and Sean actually were partners on it, primarily because Sean had bought a bunch of selected females from Cameron years ago. Right. So Sean was sitting on, sure. like, six gorgeous, ready-to-breed virgin blood pythons. So it made sense that we went into a partnership. Hey, let's get this male. We got a bunch of females ready to go. As soon as he's the size, let's get after it. We make some cool stuff. So, you know, that's how we started that. And then, of course, we went down that road. I bought a rack. Sean had a rack with some big tubs. So next thing you know, we're, you know we produce some golden eyes, um, had a you know at, at, had a little bit of a rough time competing against Tracy selling them. We did sell sure. some, um, which was great because we we got our initial investment back. Uh, but then what we ended up doing, Tracy had run out of Golden Eyes, had tons of customers that wanted them, so we traded Tracy some Golden Eyes for some other stuff. So we ended up getting some Slackline stuff. Uh, we ended up getting some zigzag stuff uh we got some batiks we got some albinos so we had a big collection of stuff uh everything was going great breeding some stuff had some fun um it turned into me and sean had a falling out 
So when that did, we split up the the, the blood python collection. Um, essentially, what I ended up keeping, I had bought a, an ivory male that I won at an auction. So I kept my ivory male, um, and, and I told Sean, I said, hey, look, out of the collection, I'm keeping a, a golden eye female, which was from our first golden eye production, because I said that that's what I got into these for, uh, was the right. golden eye. So so I kept that. Um, and 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 I will say it was a little nice at first. I steered away from the large python species way at the beginning for the simple fact that they take up a lot of room and they take up a lot of time. Um, I can clean a CB70 rack of ball pythons probably in about 20 minutes. Um, right. You know when we what had the tub are you using on these? So. The blood pythons that I keep them in, I don't even remember. I think it's a vision tub, um, but it's an ARS rack, and Brian Hahn doesn't even make that rack anymore as a double wide. I have a double wide. He makes it as a single wide now. But that tub is, I want to say it's like 28 inches across, uh, 40 inches deep, and about 12 or 14 inches tall. So it's a pretty big tub. Wow, that's a big tub, yeah. Yeah, so and so, you know, getting we can get further into the care in a bit, but I do have it's almost the size. It's another vision tub, and I'm horrible with the vision tub naming convention stuff, but it's almost a 28 quart tub that I have inside of the tub, and that's what their water bowl is. Um, and <laughs> oh so, wow. wow. Yeah, so yeah, most this of the is time, like the boa tub or something, right? Basically yes. equivalent. Yeah. Yes. Um, so that's that's what I keep them in. But at our peak, when we had I had we had like 24 bloods at the time, and I know people have more, but at 24 bloods, 24 blood pythons took me almost three hours to clean everything. Um, right. So I, it, man, they're time consuming. I love the species, and and it's one of my favorite python species. But they definitely demand your attention, and I think people who look at it as a small python that's where they get into a bind um i've never been a keeper of berms or retics um, but i do have a respect for the size of that animal but i can tell you i've been bit very badly three times from a blood and i gotta imagine it's not that much different than a berm or a retic Um, they've got some pretty extreme jaw pressure They've got very, very <laughs> large teeth, and they will put you in a bind, even though it's, you know, I would tell most people, hey, when an animal gets to eight to nine feet, that's when you need two people to handle it. A blood will never sure. get there. A very mature, very large blood python female at six and a half feet, you better have two people. Right. Not to handle yeah. it, but you better have somebody watching what you're doing, because if you get in a bind, you, you, you might need some help. <laughs> so so it it was nice there for a little while to get back down to a smaller collection, but I do love the species. I love the mutations. Um so, you know, uh, uh um the first year that I was my, ready to breed my ivory, I bred um my ivory to my golden eye and I don't know why, but I had a train wreck of a clutch. Uh so I, I ended up producing a 007 but it died in the egg and so i ended up hatching i think 2.1 matrixes which everything's going to be a matrix because i'm using an ivory male sure um which i don't yeah, I've heard the, one 
Yeah, one quick note on that, and I don't remember, or I don't know if this is still the case, but I remember it being the case before. Just, I remember hearing everyone talking about, it's actually, I know the odds are, you know, what the odds are, but when you're doing matrix to matrix, it's actually hard to hit ivories. Have you heard that as well, or seen that? I don't, but I will tell you that I started out with a matrix, and the first matrix breeding I ever did was I bred it to a albino. And so I produced this clutch of animals, and I was like, what the fuck are these? So right. I brought them and them sent apart. a picture sure. to Tracy, and I went, Tracy, what do I got? And she goes, what was the breed? And I said, matrix-style binos. She goes, oh, you fucked up. I said, why? She said, well, because when you, when you make matrix head albinos, it's really hard to see the matrix. For some reason, the head albino right. screws it up. Yeah, sometimes like, okay. hides it. Yeah. And, and, then, and then I sucked at seeing matrix. I so, said, you know how I'm going to fix this problem? I'm going to buy an ivory. Don't have to right. worry about Everything that. is. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. It's funny because I've sold animals now. And people go, hey, how do you know this is a matrix? And I go, well, I can't see matrix in that animal. And they go, well, you sure it's a matrix? I go, yeah, dad's an ivory, so I don't have to question it anymore. I freaking ruled yeah. out my inability to freaking identify that by using genetics to help me. Well, but, is, as we've talked about and I've talked about on the show, I just think they're so variable anyway. You get some of that speckling, some of the cleanness, but yep. man, I, I always say there's they're just as much as just as variable as balls in terms of morphs being out there that people aren't pursuing, you know, or at least they just haven't been nailed down yet. Oh, there's no doubt. The funny thing is, like a high quality matrix is a hands down. That's not a freaking brong is my out. That's not a normal. That's not a regular right. brong. You know, it's hands down. There's but there are there. questionable yeah. animals. And especially when you, in one clutch you may have like a low-quality matrix sitting next to a super high-quality normal. Then you start blurring lines. Um, sure. But in, so I've only produced now two clutches from my ivory to golden eye. So when you talk about odds, I was getting ready to move to my second clutch, which is funny that you brought up exactly what you brought up so i have to go back now and look at my records and i know i kept them but that first clutch like i said there was one 007 that was dead in the egg and like three matrices that hatched there were some other eggs that i cut open because i always cut them open and look um they were extremely early deaths in incubation and, and i call early mm-hmm. probably like around day 30 um Based on my, and I'll take a little side divesture right here. I don't know if that's a sure. word, but it sounded good to me. <laughs> we'll uh, take it. Yeah, but but I, I tell people all the time, hey, if you're not going to bring a snake in for a necropsy, and you have a snake die, or you have an egg that dies, man, cut that stuff open. I, I can't tell people how much I've learned. Just from and, and I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not a degree and I have no degree I didn't go to college um, but you know I've had snakes die cut them open uh, you know if you know anything about halfway about how anatomy works just look at it try to figure out what that is oh okay that's probably a heart that's probably a lung this is a stomach you know <laughs> at least you know sure. where that belongs at the animal now you know now I know that the first half of a snake is is lungs about fifty percent of the way down the body is a stomach. Behind the stomach, that's almost all fat stores. You cut it open, look. You'd be amazed at what you can see and what you can learn. Eggs, cut them open, look. You know, so 
from kindling sure. eggs and cutting eggs open that die, you know, I can pretty much determine that, you know, at 30 days you're going to start to see pattern, but you won't get any color. And then you won't even really get any color in pythons, any pythons that I've messed with until somewhere around day 50. Uh, and a lot of times, okay. I, I want to say it may have been Harlan Wall that was saying it, but someone years ago, I remember reading something or listening to somebody, and it may it may have been Crutchfield, but, you know, when a snake finally pips, so even when we cut eggs sometimes, I'll try to cut the shell but not the internal sac. Right, not the membrane. The same, yeah. yeah, the same membrane and sac that you'll see in, in live bearers. But if sure. you don't do that, when they finally take their first breath and they're now putting oxygen into their system, they'll change colors just for the simple fact that it's not right. carbon dioxide that's the, running through How they're them, respirating, is, sure. Yep, it's amazing. And I learned that with True Ghost, my first clutch ever, and I knew for a fact I had True Ghost, and I was sure I had at least four axantics and oh, everything was normal because they all change colors uh, a few days later. But, <laughs> so, color comes in pretty late, but pattern comes in. But I tell people, hey, cut those eggs open. You'll have a better understanding at what stage of incubation, you know, uh, development occurs. You know, here's when the snake looks like this. This is, you know, you, you 30-day-old python that dies in the egg, the head is malformed. It's not malformed. It's just not fully formed yet, so it looks interesting. Sure. The funny thing with, yeah, well, that I tell everybody is when you when you candle an egg, and if you're looking for that little air sac at the top, and there's always, you know, like a circle, and then the veins are all around it, and the very center of that, there's a little black dot. That black dot is the eyeball. The eyeball <laughs> of a snake almost, it doesn't change size very much. So you cut open an egg that dies at, like, day 10, there's this little right. tiny freaking worm with a giant eyeball. You know, so yeah. that's an eyeball is what you're looking at. It's pretty cool. So I just tell people, hey, look at that stuff. You'd be amazed at what you learn just from looking. So don't sure. let a dead animal or a dead egg, dead egg go to waste. Learn sure. something from well, it. I was, was going to say, Tim, that, you know, and I know Eric will remember this from back in the day with, the you know, more nostalgia, this time reptile radio. You know, you take that maglite and you cram it up in those eggs. I don't know if you do it with anything besides the ball stuff, but, uh, you know, if you want to talk about that a little bit, it'd be good to get that material out fresh, you know. I do, but, you know, I had to learn my lesson on that because I didn't read enough, and I probably should have, but you can't do that with tortoise eggs. I learned that a couple years ago. Lo and behold, like, (laughs) red foot eggs, like, if you candle red foot eggs in the first 30 days, you'll throw them all away. Because, like, there's no veins in there. Like, you don't see any veins until, like, at least day 30 or 45. And then, of course, Gila Monsters and Red Foots all on their own taught me way more patience than I thought I had learned from uh-huh. ball pythons and anything else. You know, four to six months incubation time will freaking drive you eight shit up the wall, you know. But, right. But, uh. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I I learned about the resiliency of python eggs. I mean, I tell people, hey, don't don't get crazy. But, but you know, when I see people being extremely gentle, I go, dude, they're, they're not as fragile as you think they are. Um, you know, so, yeah, we used to put a, uh, the, the flashlight on there a lot. I don't do it as much anymore. Do I think it was really detrimental or hurt anything? Probably not. Um, but at this point, for me... I think I've learned everything I need to know, so there's no point in me doing it anymore. I know right. what development's going to look like, and of course I've—I don't know if matured is the right word, 
Um, but I've got so much stuff going on in the ball python collection that there's always something tomorrow that's exciting me. So I, I don't even cut ball python eggs anymore. I let everything right go. On. Um, and, and I think that's actually a little healthier. It's probably helped because I didn't kill a lot of stuff, you know, manually but cutting eggs. But happens. I do sure. think it causes some potential stress, and, and there may be some issues with it. So I just don't do it anymore. Uh, I let them, do you cut I'll after a first pip, or you just let them go and they either come out or they don't? No, so I've found now that typically once the first pip happens, everything's going to be hatched out within 48 hours. So, okay. you know, I'm checking everything when I get home from work. So if I get home from work today and there's a nine-egg clutch and two two eggs are pipped, then I go, okay, cool. I come tomorrow and I look, and most of the time everything's pipped. Every now and again, like one egg hasn't pipped yet maybe two on occasion and a lot of times it's almost a gimme if that didn't pip there's something wrong with that snake in there right so the next day that i come home i will cut that egg if it hasn't pipped and and if it hasn't after the you know so pretty much 48 hours after the first pip if that hadn't pipped rest assured that thing probably doesn't have a pipping tooth it's probably got a severely deformed head it's severely kinked it's you know it's it's got a hernia. It, there's normally almost a major issue with it. Um, so sure. I, I've just found in the last two to three years that for the most part, if the egg didn't go bad and it's good all the way through incubation, it's gonna pip. Nothing's gonna be wrong. I up to this point doing that process have not lost a single animal to a weak pipping tooth a twisted um, umbilicus. I, I think a lot of that twisted umbilicus comes from stress from you cutting the sure. egg. Sure. You cutting the egg and messing yeah. with it. And I know yeah. Eric you know, had seen this, and I had seen it before, so I had some advice for him. But he had cut, cut some eggs, and then you get those that run out of the egg early because he cut yep. them. You know, and yep. I was like, yep. well, put the towel over them and you know, calm them down, and the rest should stay in. And it works, but, yeah. You know, you feel terrible. <laughs> yeah, I just do yeah, I don't I don't cut it anymore. And I, you know, I I tell anybody that I'm talking to, hey, I, I understand where you are, and if you have two clutches a year, you're super excited about it. And hey, I was there, and I did exactly what I'm telling you not to do. But if you have any restraint at all. Just wait a bit, and 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 if you if you if you really 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 want to cut, then cut after that first pip, and you're way yeah. safer doing that. But the fact is, that thing an egg has either got peens or it doesn't, and it's gonna be whatever mutation it's already is. You're not gonna change anything by cutting it. All I found, yeah, and the sure. biggest reason why I quit cutting is because I got tired of cutting eggs. You know, and I used to cut, I mean, I, it's still a remnant on my sheets that I keep track of for my clutch records. Day 52 is on my sheet, and I still mark the date down for day 52, <laughs> and that was the day I would cut. So I would cut at 52, and almost all my stuff hatches now even longer because I've dropped my incubation temperature because I think it's just safer, and I have healthier babies by doing it, incubating on the lowest side you possibly feel comfortable with. So now my stuff hatches at day 58. So you cut at 52, you got almost a week. So now you stress yourself out because you want to see this cool snake that you just looked at in the egg, and it's a whole week before you get to see it. Uh, I'm just <laughs> at a point now where I'm like, 
the other day, you know, I hatched out some stuff, and the heads poked out. I was like, holy shit, that's a cool-looking head. But I didn't freak yeah. out because tomorrow I'm going to get to see the whole snake, you know, as <laughs> opposed to, oh, cut it, and, dude, that's a cool-looking snake, and now you got to wait seven days to see if it changes color and, you know, what's that part of the body you can't see look like. And, uh, dude, it just it, I found it stressed me more cutting eggs than it did me waiting the extra week to to let them pip on their own. So I, I guess it's to each his own, but I just found sure. it was easier and better for me to let them, let them pip on their own. And I, and I think really that they seem to absorb more yolk, hatch out healthier, feed faster. Uh, I, just, I just think there's a ton of benefits to letting them do that. Right on. I agree. Well, yeah. Let's uh, let's hop back to uh, Blood's My present, apologies man. if y'all hear some racket, by the way. My, I've got an African gray in here. It's my mom's bird. I don't know if y'all heard him yet, but <laughs> no. somebody just pushed his start button a minute ago, so he's getting after it now. <laughs> so if y'all, if y'all hear that, that is a bird. There's a bird in here. Okay. It's not mine, but he's here. I have to, have to feed him, water him, and listen to him. <laughs> I had one of them. They can be very loud. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, and he's he's uh he's 18 years old. So not only is he loud, he's uh he's a teenager. So he wants what he wants. Particular. And, yeah. Yeah. He wants what he wants and doesn't ask if he can have it. I'm curious to uh, hear your thoughts on um, the Pumpkinhead Sumatrans, and um, you know you had you had. Alluded to saying something about uh, some talking to some people about believing that they may be a subspecies at the least. Um, I just picked up a pair of those and you know, uh, freaking really cool. Uh, so, so I'm glad you brought yeah, that actually up. Yeah, from Trace I too. Forgot yes. I said that and skipped right over. It. And so that was I was getting ready to ask and you beat me to the punch. You got them from Trace. Mm-hmm. Trace has got some gorgeous animals. The one thing I can fault Trace for, and I love Trace to death, but the one thing I can fault him for, I said, Trace, where'd you get your animals from? He goes, dude, I don't, I don't. I bought them in Chicago in 2006, and I don't remember who I got them from. So there's no way to trace, <laughs> trace, right. Trace's animals. You can't trace them anywhere. I'm sure they had to come from Tracy because Tracy brought that stuff in. She was the first one to bring those animals in. So that's where it all started so my my buddy who he's not here anymore but uh you know I, I can say his name i don't think it'd be an issue but my buddy nick he was the assistant curator uh at ottoman zoo so uh nick when Hanna? i went through that yep nick Hanna. you know nick yeah uh, well nick. when i was down at uh two lane blacktop you know so okay uh, um, nick's great people if you don't know nick's in nashville now so i'll i'll, I'll okay. run through that but, uh, yeah, so Nick was down here, and uh, as a matter of fact, that's where I got my tricolor hog nose from, uh, was from Nick. And I, and my, I heard you all while I was on hiatus there talking about uh, some Theori stuff. So my my Bloaty line Theori stuff came from Nick, who he got it directly from Bloaty. So th- that was right cool lineage stuff. But <clears throat> um, Nick brought those up to him. He's like, dude, you need to get some pumpkin head Sumatrans. And I'm like, where do you find that shit at? And he goes, I don't know. So, like, two weeks later, Nick calls me. He goes, hey, man, look, there's a guy on Facebook. His name's Trace Harden. Trace is good people. You need to buy freaking, he just had a clutch. 
So I messaged Trace, and I'm like, hey, I just heard you had a clutch of pumpkin heads. I said, are any of them spoken for? He goes, no. I said, dude, put me on a list. I want I want two pair. And he said, uh, he said, okay, no problem. He said, I'll give you pick of the litter. I said, huh, okay. So they hatched out Trace calls, and he says, hey, here's all the pictures, pick of the litter. I, I picked I picked the two pair, and he goes, dude, uh, I was thinking about holding some back. You picked all the whole backs. I went, dude, you gave me pick. I've got good taste. I'm going to pick the nice stuff, you know. So so I got his two nicest pairs that year. And then, he, you know, he, he I said, what's the asking price? He gave it to me, and I didn't ask for a discount or anything. He goes, man, I don't think I priced these high enough. I went, hey, dude, I asked. I didn't have a discount. I thought it was a good price. You know, lo and behold, actually my buddy – that I got that I used to sell Angolans for that gave me the Angolan mail. I, I bought one pair for him. Now of course he got screwed because I told him I said, "Hey dude, I picked the four nicest ones. You get the two ugliest of the four nicest. So I still get the nice ones." Um, but so I, I bought those and then you know I talked to Tracy right after I got them and I, I said, "Tracy, give me some rundown on this." She said, "Well, we don't have any anymore at all." Now of course the the caramel albino. Sumatrans right. come out of that pumpkin headline stuff. Right. Well, I like the striper stuff out of the, those heads. Yeah. Because that original one, man, was striped. And oh yeah. Sorry, I don't want to derail, but you. Who oh was no, no. The, It was something fire, something firehouse. The dude who bought that stuff. Yeah, Fireball, Jeremy. Jeremy firehouse. Yeah, Jeremy. Smith. Yeah, man. Those stri- that striper stuff was uh, that he was making in those heads was incredible. Oh yeah. Uh, now, f- f- it's horrible. They're they're beautiful animals. I never really liked those caramel albino stuff, so I, I never got into it. I just it it didn't yeah. it didn't didn't tickle my pickle. I just like the striper you know? stuff, man. You yeah. know, not even the you know the caramel stuff. But I, I oh, saw no, those no. things. He had those hats, and I was like, man, those stripers are something. Oh yeah. But uh, so when I called talked to Tracy, I said, hey, look, you know, uh, give me some rundown on on this pumpkin had Sumatran stuff and she said well said you know what's funny about that is uh when we had those dave had done some looks at them and dave thinks that they should be reclassified she said because if you really look and you pay attention at head scalation belly scalation and you look at any of the markers in any of those animals and you look at how Curtis is classified, they they don't match Curtis. She said, then the funny thing is, if you look at Britain Stein and I and how Britain Stein and I is classified, they don't match that either. Well, I didn't really have time, but my buddy, who's, you know, closet guy, smaller than me, has, you know, more time than me and, and really dives into individual animals. He goes, dude, I'm going to do it. So he went and Took pictures, you know, close-up macro pictures of the heads and vents and scales and started matching everything. He goes, dude, it doesn't match either or. It probably should be its own species, at minimum a subspecies. But the other kicker there about why I think it's such a cool animal and such a, 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 a great short tail and introduction and you know everybody's theory from Tracy to even me was way back when was man you know blood pythons and Brittenstein and I are so close to ball pythons if we can get one of these animals in every ball python collection you know that's a pretty great spread on what you can do with the species um of course 
Britain Stein and I are in general a little bit more calm than Brong's are, uh, and a little bit better. That's kind of direction for that. The cool thing that Tracy told me, and now that I've had my animals for three years and experienced it, the pumpkinhead Sumatrans are the smallest of all of the short tails. Um, right. You think you could you know, keep one of those in a CB70? I think you absolutely could. I keep them in those big giant tubs because I have empty tubs, so that's what I put them in. It's easier right. for me to put them in there. And, and then dipping slightly into short tail python care, I keep my hot spot on all of my bloods and, and uh, orange head Sumatrans at 86. That's tops. So, right. you know, if you keep them any hotter than that, I find that they flip their water bowls and they're always wetting their tank because they're trying to get colder. They don't right, and then the scales look all. like they're the scales look like they're too dry. They're when they're too wet or too dry, they look the same. It's it's bizarre. Well, but. so the funny thing is, I can't say too dry because I told you I keep those big giant tubs in there. My uh-huh. golden eye female almost is almost if unless she peed or pooed in her water, she's in her she's water in her every water. time you open the cage. That's funny. And I suspect thinking about the species and thinking about their size and where they come from, I tell people, you know, these heavy-bodied animals probably navigate pretty well because they spend a good bit of time in the water. So there's a buoyancy factor that's comfortable to their body and their body weight. Same thing with berms. Berms are extremely comfortable in the water. Same as anacondas because buoyancy helps them to where they don't have pressure on their spine. And I tell everybody... When I talk to people that are buying bloods from me, and I go, hey, dude, let me tell you the biggest way to get bit. Hold the blood python like a ball python, and you're going to get bit. If you let <laughs> any more than about one-third of the back end of that snake hang down, yeah, it's extremely yeah. painful on the spine. So the snake sure. is going to bite you so that you'll drop it, and it can get back to the ground and be comfortable where it wants to be. So if you're gonna hold yeah. it, fully support the body weight. Right. So, it's an arm setter, not a yep. yeah, not a droop. But all yeah. of that leads into my opinion. I don't know that you can keep them too wet. Now, I just walked over to mine a minute ago and opened the tubs because I saw moisture building on the front of the tub. I think there's too much humidity. So humidity mm-hmm. may be slightly different than them actually being wet. I think they can actually sit in the water for a long period of time and be okay. High humidity may be slightly detrimental. Um, but you yeah, know, humidity I, I, is something that's in the air, and they're breathing that, and it's affecting them. Just sitting in the water is just sure. sitting in the water. Well, you just don't need to be spraying them and stuff. I, no, I think no. it's mostly, you know, if they're clean and wet, then that's okay. You know, it's right. the second to, yeah. you know. And I will tell people, me keep in mind the way I do, if you decide you want to do that, and give them a very large water bowl that a fully grown adult can get into, my will pee and poo in there, and I do have to change the water probably every three to four days. So it's not a right. once a week or a once every two weeks type of deal. I'm constantly cleaning water. It's a little bit of a pain, but I think they do better with that ability to sit in that water. And and I find that my animals breed in the water bowl. I mean, huh. I, they'll, they'll both be sitting in the tub, in the water, fully submerged. And, of course, the tub's soaking wet because now two of them are in there and the water's going over sure, the top of the water bowl. All it's all over yeah. the place. Uh, but but they do well like that. But back to the pumpkin head Sumatrans, it's a, it's a 
smaller species, so I mean four and a half feet. They definitely get almost twice as big around as a as a ball, but but only about four and a half feet. So I think you can probably keep them in a CB70. Ideally, I think they do a little bit better in something bigger. But if I'm not mistaken, if I remember talking to Trace, Trace breeds his in the CB70. Um, huh. But, okay. but the other kicker with that species is I've never been bit by him ever. And Tracy told me when I first got him that, hey, they seem to be even more docile than Britain's Dianai. So you're starting to approach, and I don't think that's a word either, but docility, docility, how docile sure. a ball python is in a short tail, coupled with the fact that it's smaller, coupled with the fact that it's got a gorgeous head that's beautiful, and it almost looks like you chopped a Brittenstein eye and a Curtis in half and glued them together. So right. to me, it's a, it's a gorgeous species that's, that's pretty attractive. It's small. It's fairly friendly, but completely different than a ball python. I just, I've always had this dream and hope that it's a species that we can get more into the hobby because I think a ton of people would really enjoy it when when they decide that they want to get into multi-species and, and stray from ball python. It's a great way to stray from a ball python into, into something else that's relatively easy to keep um, and, and still docile and something they'll enjoy, but something that'll be a little different, keep you a little more on your toes, I love holding any of the short tail stuff. Um, to me, you can get a little bit closer and pay a little closer attention to them than you can berms or retics, um, but you can watch. I mean, their pupils move. They move their head. They look at yeah, you. Yeah, they're watching they're, you. They're inquisitive, yeah. and it's it's just a, a, a different experience handling those animals that I really enjoy. So I'm pretty excited by that. Uh, you know, I'm in no hurry. Um, my <laughs> yeah. female will be four years old next year. So depending on how she looks, I'll probably ultrasound, see if she develops follicles on her own. Um, you know, and, and, and when I say that, I'll look at a ball python or, or any other species of snake I'm ultrasounding. Six, seven, eight millimeters, I go, okay, there's something there. But if they won't develop to 12 to 15, somewhere in that mid-teens on their own, then I don't try to breed them, no right. matter the age. I would think those, I'm curious if you've ultrasounded, uh, I have a couple thoughts. One one quick interjection, I know you talked about the docility of a, I think that is actually a word, docility of the ball pythons is, uh, I know Eric and I both have, you know, a half dozen or fewer ball pythons, and uh, man, I think those are the least trustworthy things that I have. I'm most likely to get bit by those things, but uh, that was just kind of kind of an aside. Um, Amen. But I know Eric feels the same way, you know. Um, but uh, the the real question was like, have you ultrasounded the bloods? And I would think that the follicles probably get bigger pre-ovulation in those. So even if you're in balls, you're looking at 8 to 12 or whatever it would be, that in bloods, maybe that's actually 10 to 14 or something like that. Have you oh, seen that? I can, I can tell you everything I've ultrasounded from boas to bloods to well, I wanna hear it, man. balls, angolans, all of that stuff. It seems like that number is still somewhere around 40 millimeters. They're done. I mean, really? they're, okay. they're they're ovulating. 
Um, 30 millimeters, I, I just I hang it up. I don't even write the size on the tub anymore. I just write F for follicles. Uh, and somewhere around 25 to 26, my experience is they're never going to absorb after that. I have okay. had it occur, but it's a very low percentage. But it seems to me that that magic number is about 12 to 15. That's where, at, at least for me, I feel like I almost missed the boat at 12 to 15. Like, you need a male right now. You need to right. see okay. something or else the female says, hey, there may not be any males present here. And this this goes back to that Burt Weinstein podcast on Joe Rogan where they talk about the potential for pheromones and other molecular signals that we can't even pick up on. I, I sure. think that's definitely there and exists. Uh, so 12 to 15, if I'm seeing that, you definitely need a male in with you. 20 millimeters you're well on the way, your likelihood is high you're going to get production out of an animal that's 20 to 22. Somewhere around 25 to 26, 27, you're probably a shoe-in. I don't think they're going to absorb. The, the absorption rate is probably pretty low. I'll still drop a male in there uh, at that 25 to 27. Somewhere around that range... I've experienced it. I know Sean has. We talked about it a ton. Most animals at that point are going to develop about three to four millimeters a week. So, I mean, you can almost gauge from 20 millimeters right. you can watch when it they're going to ovulate. Okay. I have had animals that will stagnate, and they'll stagnate anywhere from 28 to 32 millimeters. They'll just kind of stagnate for a week or two and not have any growth. I'll go ahead and drop a male in with them again if I'm paying super close attention. Now, I will say I probably do not utilize my expensive ultrasound near as much as I should. I ultrasound animals probably <laughs> three or four times a year. But, but you know, I pick up on outward signals well enough that I don't think I need it quite as much. Sure. And I'll tell people, hey, go look nostalgia-wise. Go look at Mark Mandic. Um, you know, Mark and Shane Reptiles, for people that don't sure. know Mark's real name. But, you know, he put together that photo uh, description of, you know, breeding ball yeah, pythons the whole ball and python bull thing. wrapping. Sure. And it's a great thing. Go look at it because there's a lot of physical outward appearance that you can look at or even um, behavior that you can look at to know kind of what they're doing without an ultrasound. But ultrasound definitely helps. But typically, yeah, once about 25, 26 millimeters you're you're looking at, you know, four millimeters a week, so you're looking at about four weeks and you're gonna have ovulation. So I may drop in a male after twenty six to twenty eight, especially if they stagnate or if I just get a little nervous or I have a male that I think is not overbred, I'll drop him in just for good measure. Um but everything I've looked at it's still, you know, somewhere around thirty six to forty millimeters they're ovulating, independent of what species it is. Now, obviously, I haven't looked at every species, um, and I do a lot of palpating. And speaking of that, that's part of where I learned about Gila monsters two years ago. You know? <laughs> okay. and, and that's how that's how my first clutch was a catastrophe. Um, you know, I'm, I, I, I had these Gila monsters, and this is my buddy. I guess I'm, I'm diving all over the place, but the Gila no, was my, you it, know, man. it was actually Nick. Hannah, Nick's uh, uh -huh. Nick was given was given Trey, our buddy that was the 
was a veterinary. He's giving him some hell because he had some healing. He's like, Tim, why don't you bring those things to Tim because, you know, you've sucked at being able to breed them and get production. And Tim will pay super close attention to him, so bring him over there. So he brings him over, sure enough, you know, brewmate him, breed him the first year, and everything's golden. Uh, but, you know, so I breed him. Everything looks good following all the rules and so I finally I pick up the female and you know all both of my animals both that well that the pair that Trey brought are um typical healers I think from what I understand from people. You know, they'll make some noise. They're kinda of like my Angolans. They like to hiss right. and talk to you a good bit, but they're really pretty mellow. They're not so I, I, yeah. I free handle them, pick them up all the time. So I said, Hey man, let me apply what I've learned with snakes to heal us. So I'm I'm trying to palpate this girl because 'cause I'm like, I know if I palpate surely I'll be able to, you know, feel follicles, feel legs without ultrasound, which I had actually ultrasounded. I would just take, you know, a glove, put the glove on, grab her, flip her upside down, and try to ultrasound, and I couldn't see anything. So I tried to palpate, couldn't feel anything, and uh, I think uh, we were going to Disney, and so, uh, you know, I had put all the stuff in there for a bedding, was keeping it moist, doing everything I needed to do. And then I forgot to tell my employee while I was gone, hey, pay attention to the healer. Well, lo and behold, she missed a, the meal a week before we left. Mm. So I was like, oh, that's weird. She doesn't miss meals. But I, it didn't register. So about three or four sure. days later, I said, man, let me feed her again. Well, she didn't eat that meal. And it didn't register. So we left. We went to Disney. <laughs> and uh, I forgot to tell my employee to keep an eye on her. So she yeah. didn't spray the cage at all, do anything. So lo and behold, uh-huh. I get back, and there's seven eggs in there. And yeah. I, I'd never seen heel eggs. So when I, like, clumped the heel <laughs> eggs into a pile, and I'm yeah. like, okay, so if I cut off her head and her tail, the pile of eggs is the same size as her body. Yeah. And yeah. I said, wait, now it's I know huge. why I couldn't palpate yeah. the eggs because Cause the whole thing's no, full. <laughs> yeah, there's not enough room between them to differentiate to be able to feel yeah. it. But oh. they had all desiccated except for one egg that she had, like, buried deep. And so that's the right. one that we hatched that first year, you know. Um, that's cool, man. So, 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 you know, we hatched that one. And so fast forward. Um, last year I bred them and I guess I didn't put enough weight back on her. She didn't feel comfortable, whatever. She laid like two slugs. One looked like a good egg, but she stepped on it and yeah. squished it and sprayed stuff everywhere and held on to two mm-hmm. eggs and she didn't lay for like another month after that. So it was a train wreck of a mess last year. We didn't get anything. Um, well, what do you, just cause I know we got a bunch of questions about it. What do you, uh, how are you doing those? Uh, in so, terms of just your day-to-day is, maintenance and then the breeding? <laughs> they're actually in the bottom two tubs of my blood python rack. So same, they're getting 80, yeah. 82 degrees on the cool side, uh, 86 okay. degrees on the hot side. Um, I keep them on Santa chips. I just find it works mm-hmm. better for me. It doesn't seem yeah. to be a bad gig for them. Uh, it stays pretty dry. I've got a... I've got a, a cork bark log in there where they can get in, feel comfortable. But what I do do, and I've talked to some people who put water bowls in, and I do it with my smaller healers. You put a water bowl in with a Gila monster, like something that's slightly smaller than the animal, they'll just fill it with shavings, and it'll be dry yeah. in a day. Mm-hmm. So 
my healers have that same big vision freaking tub in there with them. And they spend 50 to 70% of their time in that water bowl. So wow. I'm okay. still not 100% sure that I've never witnessed them in the wild, never looked at them in the wild, never followed them in the wild. I don't know if they spend a lot of time in a pool of water, if they find pools, but I don't think they need to be as dry as people may as think people because think. they're dozen yeah. species. If you give them access to large areas of water, like I do mine, they will utilize it. Now, they're worse than the bloods. They will shit and pee in that water every other day. I got to change water every two days with those guys. Oh, gosh. You know, and if I miss like three days and come in, they're not in the water, and the water's like rancid looking, you know, and it's yeah. a freaking uh-huh. big brown soup, and I'm like, oh, this is a mess. <sighs> you got to dump it. So, I mean, they do do that. Where's but the I, employee? They, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't really, she'll mess with them, which the funny thing is, she's the one who told me the other day, she goes, hey, I don't know if I should tell you this. And I'm like, well, then don't tell me what. No, tell me. Never mind. Go ahead. Tell me what. what? She goes, uh, you know, the little baby heel. I, I just pick him up all the time. I'm like, are you shitting me? Because I didn't mess with him for like nine months. Because yes. he's so light. It's like it's like picking up a baby green tree. You know, you grab it by the uh-huh. tail. It's so yeah. light it can turn around and bite you. So I didn't, right. I didn't mess with it. But she goes, yeah, no, I, I just pick him up. He just likes to make more noise than the mom and dad. Uh-huh. Sure enough, I was like, that night she left, and I was like, okay, this is probably not going to be good. I'm going to try this. Maybe she's going to do Open the tub. That dude looks at me. He freaking starts hissing and fussing and arching his back. And, and I just uh-huh. grabbed him. He's like, oh, oh, I know what this is. What's up, dude? Hey, it's cool. Yeah, so uh, he was fine. But, um, but. I don't remember where that conversation started, but uh, no, you know, I, I like where it's going, man. So yeah, yeah either way. Yeah, no, I mean, I you know that's that's how I keep them. I haven't had any issues with them. Uh, you know, one thing that I I tell people, and so and and I I tell people this, and I haven't followed my own word just out of I don't want to say laziness, but complacency and time consumption and efficiency, but. I think there's definitely some benefit to, and I haven't read Seward's book, so, I mean, this is all, like, self-learned and me just watching and experiencing what I've experienced. Some of this information may be out there, and I just learned it on my own late. Um, But it seems to me that they do way better with some eggs in their diet. Um, So I do feed mine rodents. Okay. Um, but I know that when Trey had them, and of course the cool thing for him, he's like, oh yeah, they like eggs. And I'm like, okay, you know, of course I read some of the books and, and, uh, there's a definite there, but I was like, ah, you know, I mean, uh, chicken eggs and the refrigerator. And the problem with Trey and Nick, when they had them is at the zoo, the zoo doesn't want birds. There's goose, peacock, duck, there's freaking eggs all over the zoo. They just walk around, pick up eggs, <laughs> right? and feed them to the healers, you know? So I'm like, uh-huh. dude, they get all this cool variety of free food. I gotta pay for a cold chicken egg, then like the frost, you know, not the frost it, but warm it up to room temperature. And sure. so, uh, you know, I've been wanting to get chickens. I got tons of acreage, and I haven't. And I got buddies that have chickens, but I always forget when I'm there to grab chicken eggs from them and come home. But I do think there's a benefit there, and and I told myself that I'm gonna commit to. Um, this year, as soon as I bring them out of brumation, which I'm probably about four weeks away, uh, I'm really going to try to pump the female up with a lot of eggs. 
uh, this year to see what kind of benefit they get from that. Now, the, the funny thing I didn't know, and probably people who've been doing this longer than me do know, is they don't eat the shell. Uh, right. You know, I put it in there, but they won't eat it. Yeah, I thought they potentially could pick up some. Yeah. yeah, I figured they could pick up some calcium from it, but they don't. So I don't even let them crack it. I crack it. I put it in a little eight okay. ounce deli cup. Just crack the whole thing, leave it in there. But uh, they'll go eat everything, and uh, their tongue doesn't look conducive to licking a plate clean like ours does. But I'm telling you, when they're done, there's a shell and nothing. I don't know how <laughs> they do that, but they they eat it all. Right on. Yeah, I think Seward's using pasteurized whites mostly, or at least that's oh, what he puts he? forward so people aren't, uh, you know, people don't do stuff that's going to pass salmonella or whatever. But Right. So I think that's that's mostly the pitch. But, no, I'm with you, man. That's really cool. What, what temp are you cooling them to? So, uh, you know, unfortunately I don't have multitudes of rooms. Um, I actually, funny you were talking about rhino rats. I used to have rhinkophis. Uh, I never did get them to breed and get production, and I attribute it to the same reason that my Hondurans took so long to breed. I didn't think I got them cold enough. So this day and age, and that was when I was cooling in my house, or, you know, obviously I could cool them here, like, in my barn, but that was, like, 40 degrees, 44. I thought that was too cold. So now I have the ability in my brumation room to get my room to somewhere between 55 and 57 degrees. And I think 55 is ideal. It'll peak to 60 on occasion. Uh, But once once I got it that cold, um, my Hondurans did well. Long story on the Rinkofus, you know, they were extremely old animals. I ended up losing the male, and so I lost everything. I didn't get to breed them. But the heel. Oh, right on. You know, the healers are in there, uh, the speckle kings are in there, the milk snakes are in there. Now, of course, you know, Louisiana milks, I know they need it cold. Um, I know the all of the milk snakes do better with it cold. Uh, I haven't had an issue so far with keeping my corn snakes that cold. They do fine. Never had an issue with the um, king snakes. Um and then, of course, the rosy boas was the only other ones I was a little worried about because I think that's almost on the colder end of their spectrum. But I've never had a problem with them coming out of brumation and eating or haven't lost any in brumation. So I think it's probably okay for them. And, of course, you know, most of, if you listen to Gerald Merker um, or any of the people that are really doing the rosy stuff, most of them keep their rosies during the regular season at 72 to 74 degrees. Right, on the cooler um, so, side. Yeah, yeah so I, I think they do fine. So I, I, try to keep my, I try to keep my room at 59. The big issue is most air conditioners run at 59 degrees. So I put my stuff into brumation late, typically around January mm-hmm. 1st, because that's when it gets colder for us. That particular room is in the back corner of the building, so two of the walls are common walls with the exterior of the building. So I get some right. cooling from the outside. And so, you know, I set the AC on 59. When I bought that air conditioner unit, it's actually oversized for that room, which made me a little nervous about how it would operate during the regular season. But it's been extremely beneficial during brumation that I can put the blower on high put it on 59 and it'll actually get colder than 59 because it's oversized for the room 
So sure. most of the time, that room will sit at about 57 degrees. Ideally, I'd like to get it 55, uh, and really even 52, I think, would probably be better. But so far, I've had pretty decent success there. So the healers are in there, the Louisiana milks are in there, and then everything else is in there. Um, I actually am one of the few people that I've talked to that don't cool my tricolor hognose, uh, and my tricolors do fine without it. Huh. Um, so, huh. you know, well, right on. Who knows? I just never, never thought I had one, a need to cool them. Right on. Well, one note on the uh, the Rinkofis is that uh, so I've taken those are somewhat my bag, and I've had those for 15 years or so. And man, I tell you what, at 38, they're active. They're really yeah. slow. They look like Ganyasoma. Like the tongue will come out and they'll flick it out and they'll leave it out for 10 or 15 seconds, whip it up and down and this sort of stuff. But like, unlike a porphyracia where, man, they look like you pull them out and they're like frozen, like you'd hit them against the table yeah. and they'd bounce sort of thing. <laughs> man, the rhinos, they're, they're moving just super slow. So they can definitely oh, yeah. take that. Oh, um, no, but no, you don't, no have to, don't have to do it. No, so our buddy that those came from actually was had a website years ago. He's an FBI guy. His website was EurasianRatsnakes.com, and you know, so he had. Um, I think I want to say I remember him having like some of the uh, first. Um, yeah, the Klaus stuff and the then Fort Worth had yeah. some stuff. And, yep, but I mean, yeah. he had he had cave dwelling rats, and he had frickin no, 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 no. wait, is this who who is this? Joe Searles. Oh, okay. I got those snakes for me at oh, really? uh, Daytona like 15, Joe was, 17 uh, years ago. Something probably like about 5'10". Not tall, but not super short. But squat, stocky guy. was. Uh, he may not have said much then, but he was in the FBI. Um, cool dude. Had tons of Eurasian rat snakes. Uh, but had, hmm. had cave dwellers. Had... Um, had the Rinkofus. Uh he had what else did he have way back then that was cool. He had um oh uh well he had um Vietnamese blue beauties and all the cool stuff. <laughs> yep, yeah, yeah, he had all cool, that man. stuff. You know, so I, so when he first got rid of all of that stuff because he was moving, Sean took all that, and lo and behold, it was the first year when Sean had built his building. I don't think he was quite ready to brewmate stuff, and so what turned into Sean's office was where he brewmated the first year, and the funny thing with that room was it eventually had a drop ceiling, but none of the tiles were in it, and it was an exterior wall, so it was directly uh-huh. connected to yeah, the attic, so which really was directly cut. connected oh, yeah. to the to the soffits. So it got like 40 degrees in there. <laughs> and so we were going in that room and even looking at corn snakes and everything. We'd pick everything up, and sure enough, like you'd pick them up, and they would stick their tongue out. And it was like that rattlesnake yeah. video where the tongue yeah, where would it just, just hangs out could, there, man. Yeah, you could literally yeah. watch it go up and down and like grab it if you wanted to. And yeah. I was like, oh, okay. So these things live. They're okay. They're good. Yeah, these <laughs> you know? things are okay. The rest yeah. of the stuff, man, you know, you bounce yeah. it off the table. But <laughs> yep. So that, that's when I realized you could keep them cold. I just didn't have a real good ability to keep them at that temperature well-regulated. Because, like, this year right. I got 18 degrees for a week. They're not yeah. going to tolerate that. So I can't just stick them outside. I, I needed yeah. something that was somewhat controlled. And if I do somewhat controlled and I don't put them in, like old school, in a refrigerator, 
then, <laughs> yep. you know, then I'm going to get them 55, and that's the best I can do, so let me see how it works. And so far, that's been pretty good. But before that, right the best I could get them to was like 68, and that's why I wasn't right. getting Rinkofus to sure. do anything. I wasn't getting, you know, Hondurans to do anything, and probably would have some other issues with some of the species I have now that I didn't have then. I probably wouldn't be super successful. The corns were always okay. You get them to 68, and, you know, they did okay. I'd get production, right. so it was it was all right. That's cool, man. Awesome. Cool, cool, cool. Well, I know we're getting towards the end of this, but we still got yeah. stuff to talk about. I don't know, Eric, you tell me. Um, I don't know. Yeah, we probably got – we'll probably get – well, let's do this. Let's. If people want to get in touch with you, uh, Tim, how do they do it? What's the best way to get in touch with you? So I'm all over the place. Um, but okay. I, I do have, uh, man, I have to go double check. I'm almost positive, but on my website, so www.baileyreptiles.com, reptiles plural. Um, I'm right. positive I got my cell phone number on there, but I know I've got my landline number. Uh, if you call yeah. my landline number, my cell phone number is on the answer machine. So that's two ways to get a hold of me. Um, uh, okay. on the contact section on my website is my email address um i got sales at baileyreptiles.com i check emails consistently i will say i got a website guide i don't think does website stuff anymore i got to get a hold of them i may be looking for not a new guy i kind of like my website i don't do a ton with it but i like what i have but there is an inquire button on my website especially if you're looking at the available page that doesn't work I've been trying to get that thing working again, so be careful with that. I had someone the other day say, hey, I hit that button, sent you four emails, and you never responded. Well, I, I didn't get them, and they actually won't go. If You'll see it if you try to send them. Um, but okay. if you go to the contact page, you can see that on there. Uh, I'm on Facebook as uh, Tim Bailey. Um, I will say, I, like you guys were talking in the intro, I'm not a big Facebook guy. Uh, I my family is friends with me, and they're like, you never post anything. I'm like, I'm not on there for you and me and my kids. And that's not, you know. Years ago, someone said, dude, you're losing sales because you're not on Facebook. I went, oh, losing sales. Let me get on there. So right. I, I do have a Tim Bailey, you know, regular personal page, and then I've got a Bailey and Bailey Reptiles page. Uh, I okay. do answer private messages and messenger on there and I tr- you know I try to post stuff on there as best I can at least stuff I'm super excited about I don't do a lot of this is for sale on there um but I tell everybody hey if you see something on there and you're interested shoot me a message ask me if it's for sale we'll do that so uh definitely on Facebook definitely answer messenger uh definitely answer emails and you know, if I'm at work and you call my cell phone, as long as I'm not in a meeting, I'll answer, leave a message, I'll call you back there. But I, I, I may be all over the place, and you may not know exactly which avenue will contact me the fastest. Um, mm-hmm. But I typically, within two to three hours, will respond to phone calls, emails, messages, unless for whatever reason there's been a giant rash of people that love to message and text and email me between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m., and I'm not awake. (laughs) (laughs) But I'll answer you the next morning. I mean, I wake up every morning now, and I'm like, I look at my phone when I hit the alarm, and I'm like, man, there's like four Facebook messages, six emails, and, you know, I'm like, what? what do these people do? 
You know, I, you know, let me look. You know, I'm barely opening my eyes and trying to figure out what day it is, and I'm answering messages and whatever. But I, I'm I'm pretty reachable. Um, I will tell people that I really don't like text messaging, only because I can't multitask when I text message. All I can right. do is text, call. Right. I'd rather talk to somebody because while I'm talking to you, I'm talking to you guys. I'm in here working on my computer. I'm looking at snakes. I'm feeding stuff. I'm shedding stuff. I I can do work while I'm talking on the phone. So I'd rather talk to you. Plus, for me, it's just faster to talk than it is to type. Uh, But but I don't want to refuse a customer. I had a customer the other day says, hey, I prefer texting. And I told him, I prefer emailing. He goes, I don't like email. I went, well, then let's text. You know, I'm not going to right. lose a customer. Customer <laughs> still always wins when we right. get into a battle. So yeah, if we're battling over what's better, then I'm going to let you win. We'll text message. Uh, so feel free to text <laughs> if you need to. But I prefer a phone call. I prefer an email. Uh, gotcha. yeah, I just I get a text and I feel like I have to answer it now. Um, yeah. I get an email. I feel I feel like I can answer it when I get a minute and. Real, realistically, they're both the same, but uh, it's just yeah. the way I view them. So, uh, yeah, that is weird. I, I I can relate to that. Yeah, yeah. Like you can leave that sit in your email inbox, and it's like no big deal. But they're texting you on your phone. You're like, oh shit, man. Yeah, I don't <laughs> like that little right that away. little red circle with a one on it. It drives me nuts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh. Well. You know, one thing, so we've basically got like four minutes and it's going to cut off. So um, one thing that I really dig on your website is your birth records. I think that's cool. I kind of do the same thing. Where did you, did you get that from? Because I I took it from uh, Ralph Davis, but I'm just curious, like what made you do this all that, all those years uh, to keep up with that? my, My website guy did build that, which fortunately nothing on there is broken because he doesn't, I don't think, maintain stuff anymore. But I know how to work the back end and do all of it. But I've always kept that record. I still have 2005, my first season, my records handwritten. And I, to this day, still keep handwritten records. Uh, I can take a picture and show everybody. And I've changed my sheet and how I print it and what I do with it. But I've always kept that record. And I've changed a few of the things that I keep, but I've always kept it. And then I got to the point where even like right now, I've told people, I, I'm, I've been shipping anywhere between eight and ten boxes a week plus snake shows. And I said, man, I just answer and responding to customers, shipping boxes. I've got about 80 to 90 animals I need to post for sale. And they're like, what are right. they? And I'm like, I don't have time to write a list for you because I don't have right. time. If I had to write time to write a list, <laughs> I take pictures and I post them up and I haven't had time. Um, right. So to me, that Burton record was an easy way to put up a picture, and I tell a lot of my good customers no. In the in the heat of the season, I try to keep it updated weekly. So go right. on there if you see something. Now, mind you, it's going to be plenty of stuff on that Burton record. You go, that's the coolest animal ever, and I go, yeah, it's not for sale because it's in my collection. It's staying here. I was breeding <laughs> for that. But if you see something you like, and I got a bunch of customers do that whole freaking Photoshop. It looks like you picked up a purple giant crayon and circled this big crazy looking thing. It goes, hey, is that for sale? And I go, yep, it's for sale. What sex is it? How much is it? And, you know, I sell, I can't tell you how many animals I sell. I've had whole clutches sell that aren't even a day old. Wow. And then people oh go, hey, how come you never sell any of that stuff? And I go, oh, I do. It just never makes it to market. 
So right. I have a lot of people that know, hey, go check the birthing record. So because of the fact that that's how that's evolved, I try my darndest to keep that thing updated. I know a lot of customers will look at what eggs are on the ground, and I'll get a wait list going, hey, I'm real interested in that clutch. Tell me if this hatches. Then it hatches. It's an hour old, and people go, I want to buy that snake, and I go, it's sold. And they go, wait a minute, you just posted it five minutes ago. Yeah, but the guy told me 45 days ago that he was interested in it. So it's a good sales tool, and it keeps me from having to take pictures and marketing and spend the time to do that. So I've tried to keep up with it as best I can. I've been super lazy in the last month, and I've probably got about six weeks' worth of stuff I need to put on there. Um, but, But it's been a great sales season for the last, three months and i haven't had the time to even keep up with that because i'm selling and shipping and trying to not run out of boxes and heat packs uh, right <laughs> so uh i haven't i haven't got to it but that's kind of how that evolved why it evolved i've definitely over the years found a negative to having that but there's way more positives than there are negatives and i know you said we're running out of time so it, Probably What's the negative? Day I'd have to talk yeah. about that. <laughs> well, it's tons of them, uh, but it, you yeah. know, but, but some of the some of the the biggest thing I can say about the negative side of it is if you're wanting to keep something a little quiet, and I've tried that before, where you know I've personally got it on my page. It's a clutch number sixty-three. And you go to the page and you see 62 and 64, and everybody goes, hey, what is that? And then you want to keep it a secret. Then all of a sudden right. they, they accuse you of being Kevin sure. Curley. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. Yeah, it's thanks, a, Tim. It, this has been great, There's man. a few others, but anyway. Yeah, it's I think we be actually two, Eric. Yes, definitely, definitely, yeah. We didn't even talk tortoises at all, so. No, <laughs> well, it's, 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 it's one of my favorite stuff, things. There's yeah. more days more podcasts in the future that's right well thanks for coming on man i appreciate it and uh it was awesome so no it's been a blast man i I certainly appreciate it and you guys are doing great thing at what y'all do so y'all keep up the good work as well thanks man all right guys have a good evening you too man later yeah (laughs) i i think I, this is really weird, man, because... Right? Usually it just it shuts you. I'm going to do a little experiment. Okay. Um, because... Uh, let's just throw... I, I don't know. We're at 3.15. We're in way overtime, man. <laughs> it's it's kind of right? weird, but uh, we're still talking, I so... I, I don't know. Maybe uh, blog talk is... Any uh, second or... No, I saw it popped up. It said the show is over. So anyway, I guess we'll just end it there. And I'm curious to see if this end part made it to the thing. We'll have to listen to more. At 3.15 is what it's saying. So, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on and hanging out. I was really tired, but uh, I I just sat back and listened to that one. That was pretty cool. So (laughs) Those of you be great, man. I told you. Yeah. Yep. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, yeah, I don't. I, I don't know who's lined up next week, um, but uh, <laughs> I got to work on that tomorrow. My first day off in a month, so I'm gonna go for it. Right. Maybe I'll hit you up, man. All right. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Rob. Have a good. All right. One. Later, dude.